0: Hey everyone, Jim here of course Well usually we just launch right into things But I have a bit of a preamble So bear with me once again First of all I want to apologize for not being able to read Every single email we received In its entirety for episode 100 But we are eternally grateful Of course for your feedback Most importantly I completely forgot to reveal the winner Of the $25 Amazon gift card That I promised Um, So this is how it worked Basically all the emails were numbered In the order in which they were received And I just clicked on a random number generator For the roughly 30 emails or so that we got And the number that came up was 11 And the person who sent uh, email number 11 was Joshua 4 So Josh, expect a gift um, A $25 Amazon gift card, that is Courtesy of Amazon.com Sorry, Shane Carruth. I know you had your heart set on an Inside Out Blu-ray, but alas. Also, moving forward into the next phase of the show, the the majority of this year will be primarily me and a guest. But potentially later in the year, there could be a new co-host joining the show. But even that's not set in stone. Um, Nobody can replace Patrick because clearly he is an important voice and contributor, both past and present. and even if he is, you know, re- officially retired from this podcast and uh it's nothing personal, it's still difficult to just up and choose overnight somebody new to, you know, hopefully have that same kind of chemistry when you've built years of friendship and camaraderie and a comfort level, a comfort zone if you will when you're recording. Um but I'm open to You know the possibility. I'm not ruling that out because clearly nobody wants to be alone, and uh, I I don't want to be doing this you know by myself. And I would I would much rather find a local local compadre of sorts to uh, to join in in this adventure. It's not going to be somebody via Skype. It's going to be somebody that I can look eye you know make eye contact with and look face to face when we're having conversations. So um, it's a possibility. So be patient, and you know I'm I'm gonna put that uh, decision kind of on hold until later in the year. Um, but most importantly, I would I would love more of your feedback this year. Every email sent will get a reply, even if it's just a short one. And for this episode in particular, I want to hear your thoughts and theories on just about any Kubrick movie, particularly you know 2001, The Shining, Eyes Wide Shut. I might even read those emails on the next episode because, you know, this is a director that demands interaction and further conversation with with different people. So if you have any ideas on his work, what it means to you, your first experiences, um, your theories on what certain images and motifs mean um, in the grand scheme of things, or just anything you want to point out from what was said in this discussion that you're about to hear. Send it to DirectorsClubPodcast at gmail.com And as always, please submit a review via iTunes or click on the stars Since it'll help out the show uh, a great deal I really, really would appreciate it Anybody's listening, just take 30 seconds and click on 5 stars, hopefully um, Over on iTunes So now on to one very epic conversation And what a way to start out the next 100 episodes, hopefully with one of the most important and influential directors of our time, Mr. Stanley Kubrick. Everybody, and welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I' am Jim Laskowski. This is episode 101. Um, I am sitting here live, in-house with a brand new guest. His name is Al. And how do you say your last name? Because I have yet to say it.
1: <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's Al Kwiatkowski. like uh, most uh, best way of saying it is like to say the word "fiat" with a little cough at the beginning. Hmm.
0: Kwiatkowski Fiatkowski. Mm, yeah, pretty good. Okay. Polish or Russian? It's Polish. <gasps> okay. Well, then we'll get along. All right. <laughs> I'm actually not
1: a big Kielsovsky fan, but a gigantic Andrew Zierlovsky fan.
0: Okay. You like pierogies. That's what counts. <laughs> That's what's important.
1: Yes. Okay.
0: Now, normally I do some in-house business here and say like a bunch of thank yous to everybody who contributed to the last episode. So I will say this real quick. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so very much. But why am I in such a hurry to get to the meat of this episode, you might you might be wondering? Well, it's because we're about to talk about the one and only Stanley Kubrick. Or Kubrick. How would you say it? Kubrick or Kubrick? Tomato, tomato, I don't know. I, I can go either way, but I've heard it said both ways. Um, and there's just so much ground to cover, Al. He is easily one of the most revered directors We've ever had um or we've ever had on the show, we've ever discussed on the show. That would be amazing if we actually had him here. Mm,
1: especially uh, now, yes.
0: Yeah. So yeah, if you type his name into Google, you will come up with an overwhelming amount of books, theories, essays, critiques, YouTube conspiracy mm-hmm. videos. Yeah. Uh room 237 barely even scratches the surface when it comes to. Um, deconstructing the work of Stanley Kubrick. So I will say this. Undoubtedly, this is probably going to be part one of what I expect to probably become a trilogy of episodes, possibly, because best things come in threes. Mm. So we'll see. Thanks, Peter Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, listeners out there, if you have some ideas on, on Kubrick's work, I hope you will share them with us. And as always, you can send those to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And um, right at the top two, really quick, my podcast network just launched. I'm very proud. It's nowplayingnetwork.net. I have uh, a wonderful music uh, enthusiast who has uh, his own show called Vinyl Emergency, and he's a really great guy. His name is Jim Hankey. And uh, more shows to come on that network including uh, future episodes of Directors Club will be hosted there. So with all that said, Al and I are going to get going here because we're going to do our very best to review and uh, sort of dissect nearly all of his work if we can. Did not direct the apartment He'd like to do more than 50 takes Started out taking pictures, then went on to greater things. Eyes wide shut. Doctor Strange, Love Clockwork Orange, and 2001. Pass of Glory, Spartacus. some
1: glory Stanley Kubrick made some great movies I, I got uh, Kubrick from three different directions roughly about the same time out in like the uh, mid to late mid to late 80s like mm. the very first one was actually over at the Museum of Science and Industry they were doing a retrospective on um uh, science uh, special effects and uh, and like one of those was had was a display which was uh, showing the um the dance of the spaceships done to the Blue Danube from 2001. Nice. And yes, I was uh, just I must have sta- stared at that for a good like 20 minutes, going, uh, uh, "What on earth is this? It is. I mean, it was such. It's on such a level that was different than the kind of Blade Runner, Star Wars." Uh, <laughs> type science fiction that I was uh, familiar with that I was just, just compelled to kind of seek that out. And um, at about roughly around roughly around the same time, I finally got a viewing of the shining, which kind of did the same kind of effect on a, on a horror level. Never had I seen a horror movie that was so, you know, contemplative and like so, so like precise and, and it's in, in its direction and its style. And and then like there was the big one two for in the uh, late eight in the mid eighties for uh, war movies which had Platoon yep. uh, by Albert Stone and then then Full Metal Jacket which and that that really finally did the was the, kind of the uh, first straw of many for me for Kubrick. <laughs> It got me to think, like, how does this guy who puts, out, who puts out such precision artistry in his work and yet is jumping across all these different genres and, and, and going into all these different um, uh, thematic elements? And so I realized I had to go uh, chase more of it, and I I've, and I've found, like, every Kubrick movie I'd seen wanted me to see
0: two or three more Kubrick films. I completely concur with most of that in terms of my first experience being The Shining, and I saw that, again, surprise, surprise, at too young of an age, because my parents were sound sleepers, and I would sneak down to the basement and we had HBO. Uh, so yeah, um it was one of those movies I saw late at night, way too young. and uh, i had I had obviously I had vivid memories of a child riding my big wheel around town, <laughs> and seeing that portrayed in you know, a creepy m- hotel was something that stuck with me. And, you know, there's certain images indelible, just certain images I can't shake to this day and rewatching it I mean, I'm just like, I'm transported back to that initial emotional response I had as a kid I was like, what the hell was that? And yet again like, you get such a thrill from that what the hell is that feeling. Even if you're terrified it's a good terrified. <laughs> and that's kind of what Kubrick did for me early on. My, my first two experiences were also uh, The Shining and then Uh, My dad, you know, he was a big war film nut. And, you know, his favorite movie of all time was Apocalypse Now. Mm. But then later on, he he showed me, like, I don't have, I don't, you know, even rewatching that, too. I don't have, like, as strong a memory of the second half as I do that first half because of, you know, Gomer Pyle. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, our Lee Ermey, of course, as the drill sergeant. So he told me at the time that Full Metal Jacket was the best representation of boot camp because he was in the Navy and went through boot camp. Oh, wow. And he said it was just like that. It was just like pretty much going back in time for him experiencing that um, in terms of how intense it is. So having those two experiences kind of pretty close by really cemented my interest in Kubrick, too. I was just kind of like, wow. I, I also remember just being taken by how graceful the camera work was you know and this is a guy who's a true auteur but again like you said he dabbled in so many different genres and different ideas philosophically but yet you know he 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 was able to make them his own and make each movie distinctive at the same time but the shining to me is still something especially after you know seeing room room 237 fairly recently mm-hmm. um I just always consider it to be a really weird, creepy horror film and never thought anything more of it. And then I see Room 237, I'm like, what? The, I, like, that's the thing. There are so many conspiracy theories about, like, yeah. you know, obviously hinting to his uh, possible faking of the Apollo moon landing. That's stuff. right.
1: Yeah, I, I, in fact, I have a conspiracy theory of my own. That, oh, boy. That, like, um, I'd love to of- hear it that would kind of, um uh, um, uh, and kind of, kind of encompasses it. Um, uh, like, um, it, uh, do you want to, if you want to hear it now, that'd be great. I'm fine with All that. Right.
0: I'm totally like, fine with starting this, there. It's
1: big. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of interesting for me how like I, when I, the more I like looked at the shine, the more I kind of looked at the, the shining because on, on the level of, on the level of horror films, which to me, I think like, the the biggest success of what how you judge a horror film is in its effect. Does it scare you? Does it disturb you? Do you think about the Do you think about what you saw and experienced like yeah. uh, uh, like weeks later? And um, of course, on that, of course, The Shining is like an unqualified unqualified success.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But uh, there was a little bit of a um. Uh, but there was a little bit of a uh uh, uh um sort of um. Uh, friction came in after I'd read the book. Of course. And and now um like for those who are like not not familiar on on that Stanley uh, Stephen King has a big issue with that because Absolutely. because he's he he want his story was a lot more of a personal story, almost autobiographical kind About of About
0: alcoholism.
1: Yes, yeah. exactly. And and so and so he felt that Kubrick had gone in a, a very a very different direction which and that part of that part of, is is definitely fair uh, definitely fair and uh, fair for him to do but I I then would just notice that like the ending of the shining uh, seemed to possess a kind of uh, um, a, the logic of the that the movie had so carefully set up it started to just fray in a, in a quite like dramatic kind of level hmm. like um, Uh, Once um, Jack busts through the door and and yells out, here's Johnny. Like, then this, the, uh, the, um, the way that the ghosts behave, like, they start appearing to Wendy with no reason, Yeah. then they, she turns a corner and there's like a ghostly, uh, and there's like a ghost, uh, a ghostly room with cobwebs and
0: such. Yeah, and skeletons. And
1: skeletons, <laughs> yeah, right. neither of which had manifested itself. The, go- uh, the house, which had been so careful to hide its motives, is now just going all out on Wendy, but yet not doing anything to st- impede her or Danny in any way, um, and then do you have the infamous bear, bear the outfit? The
0: first thing I will always think of because of when I first saw it as a as a kid, I have no idea what that was.
1: Right, right. Was, and oh. uh, by the uh, by the way, when I I was lucky enough to talk to the people who made two, Room Two Three Seven, it was playing at the Chicago International Film Festival. Oh, nice! And they listed it, rattled off twenty to thirty other theories. Oh, god! And. But not one, <laughs> not one explains the bear outfit. Of course. <laughs> so I, I, I was rattling in my head as to why that, why those, why these, why are the all these things? How do they, how do they fit? And then it, and then it, it actually just occurred to me that, and that the reason that they don't fit and they don't fit because Kubrick was, I think to th- to this day, I think that is his one major failure as a film, because at the end the, that stuff at the end of the movie does not match what does not match the thematic things going uh, going on in the going on in the beginning yeah. and it was and hubrick had kind of famously said in an interview that he didn't believe in ghosts <laughs> so and yet of course he's making a ghost story and i think at the last 20 minutes kind of prove it it's i'm looking at and i'm kind of look at the last 20 minutes and i'm think here is a guy who's the most precise thought, thoughtful composed director of all time and i see he's flailing He's literally going, okay, what do these kids want? Those skeletons. They get scared. Um, like uh, uh, like cobwebs. Oh, that's spooky. I was in a haunted house once. Let's put yeah, that yeah, in yeah. there. Um, yeah, yeah. This guy in a barefoot, bear
0: bare suit. That'll
1: freak people out.
0: Um, uh, and I can't imagine Kubrick it, being in that state because he's so meticulous and like, yeah. he doesn't want to even... Put out a movie until he's happy with it, you know.
1: Well, well ah, but he's but one, uh, but he has kind of known for for tinkering. He's actually both 2001 and Eyes Wide Shut have had mm-hmm. like some re, uh, continual re edits, and he sure. was unfortunately before he passed, he was still in the process of doing editing for for Eyes Wide Shut. Oh wow, I didn't know that. And then yeah, and so like, and so I kind, but the but if you think about it, the 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 re if it if he is not if if the theme is not apparent that kind of can in a way explains all the conspiracy theories because what are conspiracy theories the attempt to like reconcile a world mm-hmm. and put a sense of order uh, of events that that don't that imply there is no order like you don't want to believe there's a lone <laughs> gunman so you make so you so create all these shadowy organizations yeah. so I think all these con- the reason that there's more conspiracy theories in The Shining than there's no there's no um theories in 2001 about how he uh faked the Jupiter um landing is because People see that hole in the center and they they're reacting. They're, yeah. Right. They're re- exactly. They're reacting yeah. against the idea that this, this can't just be about a guy putting together some scary scenes because it's so the images are so well done and it's also well put together. Otherwise, there has to be some underlying thing at work. And what could it be? And they reach into whatever they personally find. Sure. To fill, fill that in.
0: I just wonder if I like for. When I was watching Room Two Thirty Seven, I was like, "Am I intellectually inferior because like I never thought of focusing on certain details? Like, oh my God, Jack is reading a Playgirl magazine in the lobby. <laughs> like, I never thought to look at something like that, <laughs> and there it is, people pointing it out to me. Yeah, but it, like, for, for, until I saw this movie, I literally just thought this is a an effective, creepy guy goes mad because." Uh, like it's it's the most base, simplistic reading of the movie, mm-hmm. but it's just like a guy goes mad because he feels entrapped in his marriage and being a dad, and yeah. so he you know he's acting out and the 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 claustrophobia of being in a hotel and he's going mad and you know thinking of uh, just like how um, insulated he is. Yes, that's going to cause him to act out, and he's having writer's block. That's causing him to you know act out. So he eventually just manifests all this rage and anger and the most violent tendencies possible with all that said i don't know what the fuck is the deal with him being there this whole time when they show the photo at the very end right that to me is kind of like a big middle finger it's kind of like that's watching it today i kind of go okay it's not a great Masterpiece from Kubrick because he does feel like he's kind of dicking with us a little bit. Yes, I oh, ab-
1: absolutely. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I think the first example of where I ever saw of a director trolling the audience was been taking the Scadman Crothers character and having him slowly get there. Then 20 <laughs> minutes pass in the hotel and it cuts back and he's slowly a little farther yeah, yeah. and he finally gets there and lasts all of 20 seconds before right. he's killed. <laughs> Yeah. Like that is just such a way of just pulling the rug out for from from for under and under an audience.
0: That's, that's that's his sense of humor too, in a nutshell. <laughs> oh yeah, well for for sure, for sure, something that's like that
1: sense of humor that's informed and, and enlightened a lot of his a lot of his other work. And then like the behind the scenes, what like there's a behind the scenes documentary that his Kubrick's daughter Vivian had filmed.
0: Oh right, yeah, I saw bits and pieces of and that. And like he was just so abusive towards Shelley Duvall. Exactly
1: right, exactly right. And if you. And if you look at the um, uh, and if you look at the, what happens at the end of The Shining, it you could almost look at it as like as just like Kubrick like throwing up his hands and going ah because because there was while there was a deleted scene there was uh that shows what happened to Shelley and the, and Danny it's not in the movie mm. you don't know if they ever survived that blizzard That's and true. yet you dedicates an entire long tracking shot to which the final image. Is Jack Nicholson the vil- the murderous villain? Is a d- is a- in a delightful environment, surrounded by people <laughs> who love and adore him, and he has a drink in his hand.
0: Yep, <laughs> yep, exactly. I
1: mean, that's
0: that's that's but ironic. Then Take people look- will say it's the Illuminati and all that stuff. <laughs> that's what gets me. Like, I just. I- People were literally trying to find Illuminati images in every single one of his movies. Clockwork Orange and 2001. Like, mm-hmm. really? Mm-hmm. I mean, it gets to that point. I mean, I understand when you really love a work of art, you, you want to absorb it and you know, rewatch it and try to f- piece together. And that's the thing about Kubrick's films is that they defy logic. They feel like a fever dream at times that you, tr- you wake up from it and you want to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. So that makes complete sense why people would devote so much time, almost like with David, some of David Lynch's movies, mm-hmm. some of the more enigma- enigmatic David Lynch movies where they kind of want to piece it together like a puzzle. Yes. Um,
1: yeah. Well, Kubrick and shares with David Lynch, the the an artistic sensibility that is able to be per that is whether through his constant perfectionism, it just permeates almost every frame of his, of sure. most of his films. And, and people may, even in the his most crazy or moments of his movies, people see that there is an order, a guiding order at a guiding order at work. Um, and and that's what gets people to feel that there should be there. We we'll call it Illuminati or call it some sort of uh, some sort of organizing pattern. There's yeah. a it's a feeling about it. Like it's also manifests in the work of like Paul Thomas Anderson, who's who's makes these amazing compositions, so that even in films where like the message isn't immediately clear, people still react very strongly to because they the sense of a guiding hand making making great cinema uh, right. visuals and imagery is is so prevalent.
0: Yeah, a confidence behind the camera and you know, a certain intent to tell a, a story so meticulously is something that I you know, people were comparing like, you know, the opening of There Will Be Blood to to Kubrick and stuff and mm-hmm. you know, I can see You know Paul Thomas Anderson and you know his trajectory changing at that point, and with like the master and to some extent inherent vice being more like puzzle films that I like. You know going back to to try and make sense of, even though I don't know if I do, Mm -hmm. but I still like the fact that I don't, and that's the kind of argument I've made with um, a couple of people who who have dismissed uh, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's last two movies, Mm -hmm. which is kind of crazy to me. Like they kind of go he doesn't tell a story in a cohesive way to where you walk out of it knowing what it's about. Mm -hmm. And that's a fault of the storyteller. So you don't know what to make of it afterwards. But I think like, can you say the same thing about 2001? Because like 2001 is a movie where I don't know if I understand it entirely. I don't know if I understand What happens to him in those final minutes and why he goes through that aging process? And why is the monolith suddenly in his room Mm -hmm. as he's dying, essentially? And Mm -hmm. why why is he reborn? But to me, like, that's the thrill. The ambiguity is part of the thrill. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, like, I like going back to it, and maybe in a year or two, I'll have a different perspective on it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I, I mean with with Kubrick's like top with his top level works, I mean I would in in a, I would put like obviously 2001 in that score and then but and also A Clockwork Orange. Like I think one of the things that makes his work just so brilliant to me is is like his the the elements he puts on screen have a kind of diamond quality to it, hmm. where where a multi where a diamond can have mon- many many facets, and you can and depending upon how you look, that the light could catch things differently. But it's uh, but there's a particular kind of like like um, uh, beauty or perception or insight or or emotion that can come that just comes through really clear when you have a really solid yeah. diamond. Uh, you you see when I, you yeah. kind of get what I'm l- uh, saying on that. Like in terms of two thousand one, that's kind of what I. I think there's so many different ways you can look at that movie, and and almost all of them are rewarding. Oh, like, sure. you don't you very rarely run into a brick wall with in in 2001 for for, for me anyway because if you want to treat it as just like um, as just a science fiction story, it's obviously a, it cannot aim for a higher motives than like our than like our place in the universe. Right. And if you want to look at it, if you want to look at as as a, as a Audiovisual trip to uh, then it obviously works on that level too, mm-hmm. um, but then it also does things through like it also does things through like satire and uh, and like um and uh, and geometry and cinematography right. and then just even uh, even in terms of like how it's even in terms of like how it's the the placement of things on the screen like look uh, the way that those the the more you think the more I find that you can think about. Those elements, the the more like it just comes up with like just rewarding insights and, and and thoughts and feelings from it.
0: Yeah. Oh no, totally. I I I rewatching it recently. It's like the I just I can't I keep coming back to that match cut and the beauty of that and just yes. like, that choice. That's right. In of itself. Is one of the greatest moments in movie history. It is the gra- to me, it's the greatest
1: cut in movie, the greatest cut in movie history. Like just for the insight that it brings up from itself, the idea yeah. that like the idea that um, uh, human that humanity's violence uh, violence is the thing that both spurs its intellectual uh, uh, our, our intellect and goes and the tools are allow for both things to uh, co- to move forward simultaneously yeah. is an astounding insight in and of itself. Right. But the one I, I mean and I and I well the more I've looked at that scene it's just the particular way it's the, the moment that he 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 throws it in the air after he they've defeated that tribe. Mm-hmm. That that has meaning. The way he throws it. Yeah. It's this level and that he screams. It's a moment of like exultation as he hurls it into the air. Yeah. And that also has echoes of just, you know, of just how of both our feelings about the space race and and the enthusiasm we did, and both our lack of control for what we what what are what the effects of our actions are.
0: It's it it also just kind of taps into my overall conflicted feelings with technology, where it's like I want to embrace it wholeheartedly, and then sometimes I think it's dehumanizing. Yeah, like it's it's you know disconnecting us, and you know you can read arguments about that all the time, where it's like, oh man. This, you know, these computers and these cell phones and all of this, it's like, it's, 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 it's causing a disconnect, but at the same time, we're more connected. So people can make the argument either way. And sometimes like when I was watching it this time, I was viewing the monolith as a giant iPhone (laughs) or, you know, you know, it's kind of funny because like technology is kind of an, an invading force that you're kind of intimidated by it first. I didn't buy an iPhone right away because I was intimidated by it. And I also kind of went, I don't want to be enslaved. I don't want to you know, yeah. become a member of the Apple cult and all that stuff. And then once I did, I was like, oh, man, this makes things so much easier. Yeah. So why not? Why not embrace so, it? You, you and that's <laughs> kind of what I, I, I like that idea. I like the sort of... In, in, he taps he he taps into this so much, like to the point in Full Metal Jacket where Joker literally says to a drill sergeant that his choice on on, on his choice of buttons on his jacket was trying he was trying to make a commentary on the duality of man, which <laughs> right. I think that's another Kubrick sense of humor moment. Yeah, like oh, I'm just gonna literally tell you what the movie's gonna be about. <laughs> yeah,
1: so so in effect, like though you learned how to stop worrying and and love the app.
0: Yes. <laughs> very good, very good. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, he, he's he's such a complicated, interesting director, and like I said, he defies log- logic, but you can still make sense of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about it. Yes. And we're going to talk about pretty much all of his films, if we can. I mean, we've touched upon a couple of them so far, so maybe we'll start from the beginning and just sort of go chronologically if we want. Sure, Because I... I just watched Fear and Desire for the first time, and I was kind of like, mm, it's definitely a first film. It's sort of a stepping stone. I mean, he started out as a photographer and obviously did short films before this one. Um, but, you know, seriously, it was like the narration, mm-hmm. little, a little heavy-handed. It's kind of cool to see Paul Mazursky as Private Sidney, mm-hmm. Um, But, you know, some of the narrated internal monologues and stuff, again, very Malick, but not not necessarily like in a complimentary fashion to mm-hmm. the kinds of movies that I've come to love from Kubrick.
1: Yeah. He's like the narration. It's a, you make an interesting point because that is, um, that is something that like, it seems to me is a common training wheel thing for Kubrick. Like yeah, his films, okay. his films have kind of noted to have like not- most notably in Dr. Strangelove. They have a narrator who then disappears? Right. <laughs> it's right. just it, just like he just needs a little bit of help to start the movie. Start the movie off, and then he's like, then he'll let the let the movie ride ride things on its own. You know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I the for fear for fear and desire. I think the biggest I got out of it's like the dynamic of the different soldiers. Sure. Was was kind of evocative in a way of the of the three soldiers uh, from Paths of Glory. Yeah. Like and 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 that's kind of um and that to me is like a little bit of a um uh burgeoning uh a burgeoning notion of like of three people with competing motivations that at some point like two people have the two people have the upper hand on the on the on the third right. and how those alternate in a really interesting way it was it's most manifested in for modern day in like LA Confidential but that's very very it's not really that done that prevalently i found in other in other films which like have a Actor and a supporting and and and, and, and yeah. a protagonist and antagonist.
0: It's usually like a duo. Exactly yeah. right. Yes, like a master again. kind yes. of yes, um, you know, antagonist and protagonist, like you mentioned. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I do like. Gosh, past, we'll get to past the glory soon, but yeah, I like the moment where the soldiers are breaking into the cabin mm-hmm. and confronting the enemy, and it's it's it visualizes a montage of fists. Yes, you know. Yes, and snarling faces and you know, the, the, the the mush of stew and all this, like, yeah, yeah, that's kind of like raw and visceral. And, you know, that's the kind of intensity I like Mm -hmm. from Kubrick. I I like it when he, I mean, he doesn't need to be, he doesn't need to be subtle. I'm willing to, I'm willing to forgive him for, you know, even some of the moments uh, I find questionable about, about Clockwork Orange. Uh, he He can he he can afford to be unsubtle in what he's trying to convey mm. he's like i i I think I even mentioned to to a friend of mine I consider him to be an aggressive filmmaker like i mean I don't consider aggressive to be used in the pejorative sense here. I just think he's like this is my thesis i'm gonna you know put it in your face and let you um absorb it and you're gonna take with it what you will
1: yes I mean well, there is a dedication and there's a I think there's a feeling of like of near obsession that kind of informs even his most like state, even his most stately works like Barry Lyndon, you know, Mm -hmm. they're uh, like, just like the, I'm sure you've heard the legendary story about he invented, helped patent the lenses used to capture the can used to capture the candlelight. I mean, and that comes across like, well, it's like you had said earlier about the when you saw the shining, there's these elements that you are just that you're, it, it rings in your head because you've never seen the imagery presented in yeah. that in that way, and part of that comes from a guy who's literally going the who's who's clear even when he's making a conventional scene or a conventional shot, he's going the extra mile yeah. to to present it his way.
0: Well, he's known as a perfectionist for a reason. Yeah. And god bless him for it if he wants to do 170 takes if he wants to take the fincher approach yeah you know that's fine well actually you know fincher took it from kubrick for whatever that's right um still yes I think very much
1: and it, and it's it some pays of off th- and it's and yeah fincher's grabbed some of his themes Of Kubrick that uh, um, and ran with those as well.
0: Uh, Yeah, Yeah. totally. I mean,
1: I think Lapeer and Desire is kind of ultimately the limit of his of his budget. Like he just he just doesn't have the tool set that short to to be able to go and do the kind of movements that he would that he would soon to be uh, that he would soon be able to possess once he had a once he had a halfway decent budget. That's Mm -hmm. that's that's coming on up. Right. Um but the the imagery that you bring up about the fists, it's kind of cool because it ties into like what he does in his next movie, um uh, kill, uh Killer's Kiss, which
0: I have not seen and I plan to soon. But um, kill, I I missed it. So killer killer Killer's
1: Killer's Kiss is a uh, uh, Killer's Kiss is a um a fairly a fairly conventional uh uh noir noir type story. Hmm. Um um but for for Kubrick fans it's kind of notable because you start to notice that you start to notice that he's um He takes the, he takes the, his, um, folk, uh, his images have a level of distance to him. Like there's like longer hallways and there's a really, there's like a really narrow, um, there's a really narrow staircase that plays an important part, important part in the story. And as like, when you were like brought up with the the different uh, fists and stuff flying during the fight scene from, um, fear and desire, there's a, uh, a fight scene that had a very um, interesting fight scene that happens um, near the end of um, *Killers Kiss*, uh, in a abandoned in a warehouse where there's all these mannequins, and Ooh. the hero and villain have to hide among all these. And it is a it is a, it is an absolute dream of cinematography because the light obscures different elbows and heads and and uh, oh, nice. and torsos as the as the people like hide and spar amongst it. Uh, So it has it starts uh, there. You get the sense of Kubrick playing with the uh, uh, playing with the kind of um, with composition and using it for effect. And of course, noir is such a fertile fertile territory to mine to be able to mine like light and shadow for like emotions and emotions and
0: setting. Oh yeah, well Wells perfected that too with Touch of Evil. I mean, you can go on and on like you know the. The the thin man. There's not the thin man. What am I thinking of? The third man. No wait. Uh, third man. That's oh, yeah. right. The third. Okay, the the right. Carol Reed well, one. Yes. Soon, yes. <laughs>
1: that's right. And it's, it's a good point of it's a good point of comparison. Looking. I mean, when you see when you see fear and desire, you will after after seeing the third man. The third man is well known for having its uh, tilted angles oh, and yeah. and um, like really good juxtaposition of large figures and in, in small spaces. Really huge shadows upon a building and so on mm-hmm. and. And it shows, like, a world out of place. Uh, but when you look at, when you look at um, uh, uh, Killer's Kiss in that context, you'll start to see that, like, things start to get nice and linear. There's this, this, this sense of order already starts to see, impose itself on. Well, that's uh, what he
0: does so well. Yes. He does that so effectively throughout most of his filmography, where I'm like, the symmetry of everything and the framing, the choice to put the camera here and everything is almost perfectly framed. Mm-hmm. In, in a shot that I'm just kind of like in awe of that alone and it's like that's his perfectionism like I bet he spent a very long time looking at a particular room deciding what would be the ideal way to shoot that room and how the people are going to fit into that room yes you know? and, and I had a friend of mine who literally had a um a,
1: a book a, a a big collector's item book whose entire contents of the book were stills from 2001 and every single one you can <laughs> put a frame around it and hang it on your wall because oh. it's uh, because the composition of it is so exquisite. It's like, um, uh, I mean, his, his, as uh, his, um, career as a photographer paid him off, paid him off very well. And maybe it says something about like how, about like how, if you're able to like c- capture an image that's completely still, then then that allows you your film a room to breathe because you can hold on a particular you can hold on a particular shot and the shot can have a like a resonance that sticks in your head longer than like longer than a conventionally type of shot would.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Take note, Michael Bay. You don't need to have a hundred edits, you know, in two minutes. You can literally just linger and let your scene breathe, and that's what Kubrick did so well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the killing is fascinating to me. It's because I'm I'm a sucker for a killer heist movie. Uh, I love pretty you know that's yeah. that's one of those genres, con men movies, heists. I'm always down for that. I remember seeing this when I worked at a video store, not knowing too much about it. Just like, oh wow, you know Kubrick made movies all the way back then, mm-hmm. and it's only eighty minutes long. I'm in. Um, right. So I, I saw that and, you know at a young age, and I think I was also made aware of it because. Uh, obviously, Tarantino made reference to it with Reservoir Dogs mm. as it being an influence for him. Um, yeah, so when I saw it way back when, I loved it, and I, to this day, I was just kind of like, it might be slight Kubrick, but it's still freaking amazing when you watch it because it, it you know, the pacing is fantastic. You get really hooked into the story, especially with that schlub. You know, and you know, and his crazy manipulative uh, wife. Yeah, Alicia Cook was really good as the uh, yeah in that in those types of roles. Right, right. I mean, it's it, like I said, it's kind of slight, but it's infectious and entertaining. I mean, I'm not a fan of the, again, and it's not to say I dislike voiceover <laughs> narration in every situation, uh-huh. but I'm not a fan of the detached sort of. It's almost like a documentary kind of a voiceover in this movie. Yes. But I guess maybe the choice back then maybe helped audiences keep track of the movie better. I don't know what the choice, why, you know, that's in there. Because watching it now, it just feels kind of cheesy.
1: (laughs) Well, it's... it's, it you, uh, I think it helps to take a look at like how many movies are trying to do what the killing was doing, right? Like in terms of
0: the non-linear timeline, exactly.
1: And, yeah, and and you at that, I can definitely see how you would want to go give any help that you can for that you can for an audience to understand that oh now it was back like 30 for what happened 30 minutes ago sure and 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 no it's not happening later it's this is you have to jump back the and we do do you know that can get an audience to do that and the narration was an an, an attempt to go and um help out on that um um yeah i mean i think like that i see what you're saying on the narration because it's got the leslie nielsen total squaresville (laughs) level (laughs) level delivery to it right but but I am a huge, huge fan of 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 the killing, um especially as it comes out after like it's his third film for one thing. Right. And it comes out right after right after Killer's Kiss. Now now Noir to me like is is so much about, like, it's the, the, tra- the tragedy is about, like, because it's about, like, uh, uh, usually about a figure who, like, goes and wants to find out what a secret is, and the tragic thing is that he finds it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so much of that, like, the, the, that secret area is put up amorphously, most famously, like, the, the glowing briefcase in, uh, Kiss Me, Kiss Me Deadly. Yeah. You know, like, it's, like, it's a palpable sense that seems to come, emerge out from the darkness, but... <laughs> Kubrick kind of broke that wide open to me in the shining I'm sorry in the shining but in the in the killing because it is um uh, because the system is something that he imposed it's a uh, it, it, it's it's something that his character set up with a very complicated scheme to to do the robbery but it's what Kubrick sets up to make sure that everybody in the audience can be aware right. like and he's bending space and time to do it
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Like you're not. You're you. I mean it. I think um, it can qualify
0: as noir. I don't know how you feel about yeah, it. I think so. I think so. It's 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 definitely got noir elements, especially when you have like a, you know, a double indemnity esque kind of betrayal with with, right. the, with the wife. That's and true. Um, yeah, but at the same time, it is sort of a good old fashioned heist movie, um, and a very clever heist movie. I mean, that's the thing is like you. That's probably one of the joys of something like, you know, even the Ocean's Eleven remake. You just want to watch these guys pull it off, mm-hmm. even if it's implausible as all hell. It's mm-hmm. just fun to watch, you know, villains pull off their scheme. And I think, you know, the, the idea of maybe this being one of the earliest examples of a nonlinear timeline, jumping back and forth as we sort of get to watch these gang members and all their specific movements before and leading up to the moment of the heist, that to me is it's it's fascinating to see in that context in, in that time, um, and seeing someone you know as charismatic as Sterling Hayden, you know, kind of uh, at the forefront of this whole scheme is pretty great. Um, but you know, and, and funny thing I was thinking about when I you know when we, once we finally get to the end is the notion of master plans undone by fallibility. Yes. In the same way, I thought of the ending of uh, my favorite movie, Sierra Madre. Mm-hmm. Where it's like what happens to the gold at the end of Sierra Madre? and then look what happens to the briefcase of money or the suitcase full of money here at the end of the killing it's that's just right like, that happens you can't you can't control uh the randomness of you know certain situations and circumstances like you just never know there might be a puppy that's going to run out and do something and yeah. fuck with your plan. <laughs> yeah, that that that's right.
1: I mean, you're the like the the killing is so, such a patient zero of like Kubrick, of the Kubrickian themes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I think if there's Life's one,
0: absurdity and right, yeah, yeah.
1: definitely. Fate. And then right, exactly. And then and then systems. How well? How carefully? The kind of friction you get out of how how no matter how well you compose it and put it together, there's something that'll come out and and it'll break it down. And 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 an ironic way, what breaks it down in a lot of cases in in The Killing is humanity. It's sure. Alicia's cook uh, 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 affection for uh, for his wife that helps yeah, yeah, do yeah. in a lot of plans. And what brings them – and what brings – and there's actually, for a noir, there's a really interesting social commentary going on because these are all people who have straight jobs. <laughs> And they all have a particular reason, whether through illness or or a gambling debt or what have you, to go and like uh, participate in this
0: participate in this kind of scheme. Yeah. And um, that's but a- their sin is ultimately pride too, to some degree. You know, I mean, especially like, oh, I I really want to. I mean, you know, he really wanted to make a better life for his him and his wife. Yeah. So I guess it's not necessarily like selfishness entirely, but at the same time. Yeah, it, it is fallibility. Well, Hayden, Hayden has a haughtiness that serves him that
1: serves him well. Even though yeah. he is a even though he is a careful even though he is a careful person in a lot of his actions in the movie, it do, uh, There is a sense of there is a sort of sense of pride about like you and and to the extent that it's a complicated scheme that allows to that he nearly gets away with it. You know, it's like I can see why it would co- why it would um. Uh, uh, why he would feel that way. And sure. I'm not sure that it, like, it doesn't really lead to his fall. What leads mm. to his fall is like, what leads to his fall is like the human fallibilities of the other people, and then ultimately, just the, the ultimate orchestrator, <laughs> right. Kubrick himself, like, puts a situation where, where he, so, he doesn't just, where he doesn't just like, like uh, mess with him, but he soaks in it. Like, sure. he has to wait in that line for so, for so long, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, part of me was like, oh, he's being such a to that airport clerk. Yes. Fine. You let it I hope things go wrong. And you kind of expect it to happen anyway, but the way it happens That's right. Is so clever and so Kubrickian... That's Which right. Is a word they'll probably use a lot.
1: But. Yeah, like one of. I mean, like there's this. I mean, the the killing goes so far deeper than like what most noirs do. Like that, uh, in terms of like just relation to like people and their behavior. That it's that it's just really stuns me even to this day. Like my favorite scene is when the Timothy Carey character, the uh, there's a the sniper is trying oh, yeah. to go. He's trying to, he needs to go and be in a certain position. And then he meets up with an an, an, atten- an, an attendant at this parking lot where he needs to get in position. Oh man, that's so painful. Right. And then, the, right. And it turns out that they are both veterans and they have a developer rapport, but he needs to do that job. And so he, in, it ends up insulting him in an incredibly brazen way. Yeah. And for one thing, it shows you, like, how, like, how people can't get together because of the jobs that they have to do. And also that, the a case of rudeness, right. paying off, like, getting unexpected consequences.
0: Yeah. yeah, you- yeah. And again, it's like yeah, rightfully so. That's you know you're you're gonna pay for that. That's kind of what I feel like when I'm watching the movie. Yeah. Um, what did you think about the femme fatale? Did you think of her as a totally evil figure? No, I don't know. I don't. I I, I, I mean, again, selfish. Yes. But um, at the same time, it's it's like yeah, you, you you do expect a femme fatale figure to come into play and sort of, you know, mess up with this. But it's like why is she going to the to the hotel room to listen on the meeting? You know, it was almost like just to create a stir or something. You know? uh-huh. I just, I always, I always questioned her motive to even do that, to follow him to like, why, why is she going there? There's mm-hmm. no point. What's it going to do? What's, what's the purpose of doing that? So it's, it almost seems like she just wanted to stir chaos in a way.
1: Uh-huh. uh-huh. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I mean she's she does go, she does seem to go above and beyond. But I think it's a kind of a, to me, it's a triumph of casting on Alicia Cooks. Like if yeah. if you if you knew that your uh, uh that your husband is Alicia Cook and he's in on a scheme, wouldn't you want to try to make sure he doesn't screw it up? Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's that's the way. That's the way I. That's the way I, t- I took it. Yeah. <laughs> She almost reminds me of uh, Ileana Douglas back then. Yes, yeah. very much. Yeah, very yeah, much so. Probably the big eyes.
1: <laughs> yeah, and 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 this is actually I I'm I also kind of like how like this is the one this is one film like in, in, in where Kubrick does impose a level of empathy towards his towards his human subjects. That's something that he may has fi- has find wanting in some of his other films.
0: Yeah, I know because well, we, I'm surprised we haven't addressed this sooner because. The one critique I hear from detractors is that he's too cold, too clinical of a director that you can't really emotionally connect to any of his films. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that maybe they haven't seen The Killing or passive Glory. I don't know. They're just sort of basing it on something like maybe A Clockwork Orange or Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I don't know if I consider them to be cold or emotionally distant. They're just confronting darker emotions you know i mean maybe maybe there's a lack of compassion for certain characters but i don't think that's the case for every single character that he constructs Mm -hmm. um and that's definitely the case for the killing like i definitely felt like he wasn't judging sterling hayden's character for for example right right i mean and it's it's I think you can get a clue about that. at the end, like when it does just
1: close-ups on him, it's yeah. it's not done to Looks like sad. right. Well, right, <laughs> and, and Exactly, and it keeps cutting and it keeps cutting back to him, just showing that there is a level of attention. It's not done from from a distance to go and like show like just to, to show him like like uh, like as a small figure with the money all floating away like yeah, that. Yeah. Would, like um, uh, he they get they give him moments for him to for his uh, feelings to uh, come through. In a way that some for some of his other compositions, like you could almost like Barry Lyndon, for example, some of his figures are almost lost in the frame. <laughs> yeah, so almost at a distance. Exactly. Movie.
0: Yeah. Yes, but a movie that's really near and dear to my heart. It's I think it's the first masterpiece from Kubrick. I mean, I do love The Killing, but Paths of Glory is just something. It's something else. I think I don't know. It, is it the first example of the dolly tracking shot in the? In the trenches, where it's like I became so aware of, like, yes, God, that is that is the graceful camera work that Kubrick is kind of known for and that he would go on to do so effectively in, in his later work. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, those shots in the trenches, either following uh, George McCready's character or, or, or Kirk Douglas, I just go, man, that's that is just fluid and beautiful work. And in such a chaotic environment, yeah, and just a way
1: that, like, I mean, just the ha- just the uh, the the artistic evocation of it is so good because mm-hmm. it because it presents pe- him in an enclosed space and yet also gives him the sense of motion right. as the as the as the other soldiers and the ground is scrolling around behind him on on either side, and it and there's there's a particular like tension between the sense that he's the sense that he is. That his fate is both like ongoing, and he ha- feels like it's it's, and he's um needs to keep himself one step ahead, and yet is already determined for him. Yeah, is is just just comes
0: across, and just how the camera is able to move and uh, position itself. Yeah, the camera seems like it's a character in and of itself. It's like it's got its own life to it at times. Like I think of the way it's in front of Tom Cruise and eyes wide shut, and he's like. F- literally walking towards it yes and you know it's moving in such a particular way that i i i I recognize it more and more as as it being one of the most influential you know camera work and Mm -hmm. pieces of camera work and so i don't know if paths of glory was did you notice it in in earlier films because i feel like paths of glory was the first use of the dolly tracking shot for him. Um, I mean maybe it's sooner and I just can't picture it like in the killing or something but like I just remember going wow no, that's No that it. that's the first one where it's like most most prevalent yeah, for yeah, that's exactly. most
1: prevalent for me was that that uh, like ju- and and just and how long the dolly goes. Like right. there's I think like during the midpoint when 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 Kirk Douglas's character first comes out the troops it goes it goes on for a good what? 2 one or
0: two minutes yeah, and I know. it's it's it feels so long but it's so beautiful and the uh, the invasion sequence in that film too is something something special. Yeah, yeah. Now what now what the what p- puts it in the masterpiece quality in for you for Paths of Glory? Well, com- what, what, oh, what a, you- a sense of compassion and the ending is one of the best scenes in movie history for me. Like I just I feel hmm. so, I feel so moved by it. Like there's a moment of reprieve at the very end when it, you know you see the the German girl singing. And like, you got all these rowdy soldiers and they're being soldiers being rowdy, you know, and then right. all of a sudden this girl starts singing and they completely, they're completely silent and they sort of just take in what this experience is. And there's an interconnectivity between all these people and they're feeling humanity in a time when there was no humanity going on. So human feelings through music transcend language and fear and time. So I think like that I just respond to that more than like most of Kubrick's films uh, emotionally speaking. Like I do like other movies more. Mm-hmm. But in terms of a film where I felt like everything worked, every performance was perfect and it's also tight. <laughs> I hate to use that word but it just sort of comes up once in a while when you when you have a movie that's like feels like the right length. Um, because, I mean, some movies go on too long. Some movies feel too short. This one feels just right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and, like, George McCready is such a... F- oh, God. <laughs> he just makes me want to punch the screen. But it could also be related to George C. Scott in, in Dr. Love and how ridiculous yeah. their decisions are in the face of, like, their madness, essentially. Right, right. So, yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's just great. It, it's, and it feels like maybe the more sobering kind of... Serious version of Doctor Strange, where like there's moments of like people in power calculating percentages of human life and casualties and things yes. like that. So it's just a, a a damn brilliant war film from him. That you know he would later go on to sort of capture these themes in other ways. But I just I just there's something about Paths of Glory. Um, the cinematography especially too is just top notch.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's right. There's definitely some burgeoning um, uh, um, elements that that made that made themselves perf- manifest much yeah. bigger in in, in Doctor Strange Love, like um, like the idea that the people in charge, people in control, they're like they're uh, have their their ambitions are as small as their power on the situation is is great, mm-hmm. um, and. But then the but then even the even the people on the lowest rung they have all they do there's a wonderful like interaction between those three between those like three different oh, prisoners. Man, oh, man.
0: And with the priest there. Yeah. Ugh. See, like I just I get so worked up watching this movie. <laughs>
1: yeah, and you so know? yeah, I mean, and like right, and their reactions are all like I mean are all really uh, distinct, but so so evocative. Yeah. And and like I like and I I particularly like that ironic bit of humor there when there's a the cockroach in their cell and then and then Joe Turkle's character goes and says oh, that that lousy cockroach is going to um uh, survive <laughs> us all, to which Timothy Car- Carey's character just goes slams him dead. Yep. Guess you got one over on him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, Timothy Carey too, man. When he's. <sighs> When he's, when he's facing death, yeah, it's just heart-rending. Yeah. <laughs> you I, know, I mean, I I think part of me is like, you know, I, I hadn't seen it in a long time, too, and I was like thinking, do they get out of this? No, no. That's not Kubrick. He's not going to let people, you know, it, he, he's uncompromising. He, he's going to show the reality of what the situation would be like. And, you know, I also do like a good procedural in a courtroom setting, like, I'm... Mm-hmm. I never fancy myself a lawyer but every now and then I do like a good effective courtroom drama and mm-hmm. that has elements of that in this too that I think are very effective.
1: Yeah, oh and I mean it's like and the courtroom scenes are just the courtroom scenes and then the 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 trench scenes and then the jail cell scenes are just like they're just like a masterclass of what um, Kubrick can do with the levels of space right you know he's like that uh, he manages to make one of the most open areas of a, a courtroom sequence like seem oppressive
0: yeah and 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 the way he shoots Kirk Douglas as he's walking back and forth and
1: exactly shooting
0: like a lower angle right
1: that's right and yeah. then and then at other at other points the angle presents the the different grid lines as if it is a giant chessboard yeah. And Which he
0: loved to play chess, so it makes sense that that motif would come up.
1: That's right, and then Lirzama, um, uh, and he's, um, uh, and then, and then he, and as he, pre, as he presents like, as he presents the generals, that's in a p- p- position like from, from behind, as if the generals are blocking the, uh, they're blocking the view, whereas. The shots on on Kirk Douglas are are wide open, benefiting like his his uh, his relatively naive nature at that at that point in the film. Right. And then like as as open as that is, like the cell scenes are just that much more claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. And you just have um, a great combination of those in the in the trench in the in the trench runs. Right. So much like of like. So much of that movie can go and express like the positions of people and the levels that they can or cannot get out of their own own situation or they're buffeted by fate. It's like kind of like in a way like how the in the killing, how the um, how like. The ultimate set, uh, person who set up the world, Kubrick himself, ends up like turning against the the incredibly complicated scheme of the <laughs> of the of the robbers. Like th- at different points, whether through like whether through the the chaos of war or the machin- on the machinations of these generals who are only doing this out uh, for their own vainglorious reasons. Like there's just some there's always some higher thing that's 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 yeah. uh, that's screwing up whatever pl- interfering. Yeah, yeah. That's
0: right with whatever plans you're doing. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, I mean that that the the moment with the the three guys and I can't, I, can't, I don't know. I know he's not a general, but he's just he's one, he's the guy in charge, and he he's the one who flees, and he's he's the alcoholic too. Yes. right? and so he flees from the from the battle and accidentally shoots one of the one of their own, and you just think like, okay, he's gonna get his comeuppance. He's gonna, you know, get confronted about what he's done. He might even wind up on trial. No, because sometimes, you know, in, in in a world where chaos sometimes happens, that's the bad guys do win. Right. Sometimes that's you know, a- like guys like George McCready will get away with shit. <laughs> you know, right.
1: That's a, right. That's a way of like where his, um, yeah. I mean, from his like third film on, like Kubrick's viewpoint is is already assert is already asserting itself. Yeah. And like, and that's not how you treat like uh, people who create traitorous acts in in films up to that up to that point. Um, uh, and so that was a real, yeah, it was a real bold uh decision that he made.
0: Yeah, Kubrick really confronts reality in ways that I think really put people off to where they're they 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 just find find them too much like it just you know people do go to the movies to escape and people do go to the movies to be entertained sometimes being challenged is a challenge <laughs> you know and yeah. i think thematically his work can you know cuz i will say uh, you know clockwork orange has become one of my le- least favorites and partially just because, like, of how ugly of a film it is in terms of its of the character being presented and the way uh-huh. you know he, he thinks, and even just like the conditioning, the Pavlovian response that the government has to condition this particular person doesn't sit well with me. Yeah. So like, just you know, certain elements put me off. I will say it's a great film. It's a film that doesn't sit well with me Mm -hmm. personally.
1: Well, yeah. Sometimes sometimes great films like like are are great because they can push you into thinking and feeling ways that that you that you wouldn't have otherwise.
0: Oh, certainly. And yeah, I think maybe provocative in that way. Yeah.
1: And maybe uh, Kubrick's yeah, maybe those accusations of Kubrick's coldness is comes from a point where which I would say he makes you aware of how useless empathy uh, will towards people would be. Yeah. Especially you, in war. Like, right, exactly. Yeah. And then like, like just the karkens back to me for 2001. When, uh, when, um, uh, when they when the reporter uh, is saying oh we think the hal 9000 sort of sounds like pride in his work and uh, and one of the um, astronauts says well he's kind of programmed that way so that we can relate <laughs> yeah. like how much of a you know and uh, maybe, uh, maybe in a way, like a uh, Kubrick is putting a spotlight to the kind of like <laughs> to the kind of deprogramming that that yeah. the idea that that because that because uh, uh um because of uh, for example the character in um, Paths of Glory uh, commits a tre- uh, commits a treasonous act that there's that there's a sense of right or wrong where he'll succeed in the end and yeah. and you should and that and that the system that uh, st- is sending these people into harm's way will actually care about their faiths or care about their guilt or innocence like like he is he is um really good at presenting uh um parts in his films that disabuse you of ideas like that
0: yeah yeah i mean like early on i read a lot of existentialist philosophy but it did depress me like it invigorated me and depressed me at the same time like it made me think about my place in the world but then you you read stuff like Nietzsche and you kind of go, oh God, we're doomed, or like you know, <laughs> there is no God. There's nothing. There's nothing there. There's nothingness. I mean, do we want? Does this is this a good time to bring
1: up? What do you think? Do you think a Kubrick has a philosophy? Um, and if so, what? Wow, do you think that's think that's,
0: you know, that's a that's a question that could probably be a whole podcast. It but could. yeah, um, do you think is it existentialism in any particular way? I think so. Way? I think to some degree. He touches upon those ideas, you know, of uh, there being, um, uh, like, just humanity having struggling with itself in the world and its place, and I, I think that he questions it and he questions dehumanization. Yeah, a lot through different forms: through war, through technology, through sex, to some degree too. Right, with eyes wide shut. So, like, I think he's just he's fascinated by what makes us human and what makes us inhuman Mm -hmm. at the same time and how do we find a balance? You know, like even within the, the institution of marriage, how do we find a balance between our internal desires that are often manifested in dreams to reality where we have to, you know, face the same person all the time. And I think like that movie. We'll get to it, but it's just like
1: yeah, right, right. No, that's a great point. I mean, it's the way it's like it's like I think like I think Kubrick has this to me. I I can't put a I can't put the uh the specific you know philosophical word for this thing. Yeah, but I kind of think that like Kubrick has a kind of comic ironist view of the ability of fallible human beings with lots and lots of uh, failures and ways that people come up short, yet we're able to create the most astounding things through sure. through the through skill and through and specifically through technology. And how is that how is that possible? And what's the what is the results when you have a very, very imperfect people
0: attempting to build a, a more perfect system? Yeah. I think I think he also confronts the possibility that a lot of people are in denial. And, you know, what What ramifications does that have for us as a species? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and in 2001, I, like, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around, like, its overall thesis. And, like, he's not even a director where you can look up, I don't know, if maybe in some of the documentaries or maybe there are interviews where he explicitly states what certain things mean, but I think he was the type, much like David Lynch, to leave things ambiguous and say... You make of it what you will, and I love that.
1: For for two for two thousand one, like yes, there's definitely he is definitely put in an effort towards making th- towards abstracting things, towards removing specific sure. specific um um uh, uh, uh explanations for for why why things look in uh, why things look in the film, and, and when we get to when we get to that point, there's like um we'll get to hopefully get to explore how
0: just how rewarding that can be. You know, a movie that um, I'm kind of okay with is Spartacus. I'm okay with it. He, um, Kubrick himself felt it was a compromise because Kirk Douglas's involvement was very controlling. Uh, he he had a lot of say in the production of this film. Hmm. And I'll, I'll give it credit. It's, it's a rousing, spectacular piece of escapism. With some great set pieces, a great sort of uh, climactic battle sequence, and it looks fantastic. uh, You know, some of the you know even the matte paintings are pretty because that's Kubrick for you. But um, you know, there's powerful individual scenes, and they but they tend to be more on the episodic side to where like I don't get drawn towards the movie as a whole, but I look forward to specific moments of Spartacus. So it's a film of great moments, but not necessarily like a rousing complete overall success and that's probably just because you know Kubrick himself even said it's not 100% my movie and exactly what I intended this movie to be but for what it is and for you know his stamp on kind of a more mainstream Hollywood film it's still good it's still very good for what it is
1: Hmm like um he yeah i believe he got final cut for all of his films except, after except uh, this one. For, for after Spartacus he insisted upon he insisted yeah, yeah, upon yeah, yeah, getting yeah, it yeah, that's right. and um yeah i mean d- d- um i had heard that i had heard that of all things like he actually kubrick wanted a more feel good ending but it was douglas that turned him down for oh
0: really okay
1: huh but i mean uh, that's what uh, did you hear it. yeah i know i would have totally not expected that um uh had um uh, had what would you hear about like the particular battles? So it's it's kind of interesting by the way that kirk douglas's character in the bad and the beautiful may be more uh autobiographical <laughs> than Wait yeah, for no, I, thought. Just,
0: I just heard he was very controlling you mm-hmm. know and, you know, he wanted specific things t- to take place that Kubrick wasn't happy with. And, you know, there's, it's interesting, too. Like, I wonder what their di- dynamic was on Paths of Glory to have that be a complete success and how they worked so well together and you know what why did kirk douglas i guess he just was he was the producer i guess so right i mean they're both feature
1: yeah they both feature like like uh people who are like like of a, mil- a military or like warlike bent who are like fighting over against the system sure and so uh like where where did it go where did it get uh a, a miss with like like it's certainly like kubrick's closest thing to uh, I think is Kubrick's closest thing to what his dream project may have been at least in terms of his Napoleon uh the yeah. in terms of the battle in terms of the battle sequence with the hundreds of troops and the tactics right. like uh that um, tactics that are used like um I those are something that I mean I've certainly not seen in a lot of Kirk Douglas Kirk Douglas films those are like the epic sco- the epic scope of it is mm-hmm. like um uh, oh, uh, really sure. nice to behold yeah um, and uh, in turn, I mean, there's there's certainly not a lot of like um a fatal uh, there's certainly not a lot of like fatalism going through most of the film like and I know even that's if- surprising
0: to me like I'm expecting you know more of what we come to expect from Kubrick and it's not here but at the same time it's like it's kind of refreshing it's kind of refreshing at the same time to go like in the opposite direction and have no fatalism and mm-hmm. sort of like dark existentialist you know you know. The 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 lead character doesn't get what he wants. Kind of a right. approach to movies.
1: Right. True. True. So. And then, like, yeah. And then like there, I mean, there's some malevolent figures in there, obviously, oh, yeah. but but they're not presented in kind of a sinister way. The way that Kubrick was able to so effectively like do the Grady, the caretaker, and The Shining, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, you could totally have seen the um, character played by um, the. Um, uh, Night in the Hunter, Charles Lawton's character oh, yeah. could have been a lot, like, could have been a lot more weird and disturbing. And he, he, he's not, he's a lot more, he, he's a lot more like, um, of an orderly, ki- uh, yeah, orderly he's kind grounded. of, orderly kind of, exactly. Yeah. 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 And, um, and like, even the, I'm, although like, you just have to give a little credit for the, the, the sequence where, um, uh, Olivier and, um, and like Tony Curtis are out there and introducing a very <laughs> interesting a very um, unconventional like um uh, relationship to be presented
0: at the time. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah, that yeah. was
1: that was going on pushing out directions. Sure. And, I mean, how did you think that she, that um Kubrick handled uh, Gene Simmons's character, the uh Spartacus's <laughs> uh
0: I thought it was okay. Like I mean, I I didn't necessarily, you know, latch on to you know the the specifics as as strongly as I have with his other films, you know, I it was kind of more of like a, you know, a, a visual awe, and less of a like, oh man, I'm really invested in what comes becomes of these characters in this case with this movie. Mm-hmm. Which is which I found to be like, okay, you know, it's not necessarily like let's leave my brain at the door for this movie, but you know, it was also kind of you know, when you know you're about to rewatch 2001, it's good to just. W- enjoy you know something that wouldn't be out of place you know like a napoleon film or an errol flynn film or yeah know, just something where you can just enjoy for what it is and mm-hmm. i think you know kubrick's you know take on that type of film is is pretty solid overall i just kind of went is it something i'm going to be re- re-watching and dissecting time mm-hmm. and time again probably not yeah there I mean
1: there are one other one thing I'd like to note on that is is that it kind at the beginning of it to me it kind of comes across of like the thing that puts it in a little bit deeper perhaps of than we'll say what gladiator was doing yeah. is is that like it's kind of almost as if um, uh, uh, Jean-Pierre Melville or Michael Mann was filming the first half of uh, the uh, Gladiator, in the sense that like it's so much about the mechanics of the gladiatorial combat, right. the training, the the training, the tactics, the different like the different matches, and there's not even there's actually not a huge amount of dialogue to that uh, dialogue to that either. Yeah. it's it's the mechanisms of like of the kind of combat and the kind and the the sense of. The, the rules and rituals that are involved on that That seems to uh, get a little more of a focus Than the plot is strictly dictating that it should
0: Yeah, it's the, Focus on the details and the specifics Yes That, you know, he, he does so well And, and you know, that's, that's a good point That's something that, like, I gravitate towards In mo- movies where, that take its time and say And show you This is how this person does what they do so well And, you know, like even even a director or, you know, a writer like Mamet would be like, one of the most exciting things to see is somebody doing their job and doing it well. Mm -hmm. And that's the case here. Yeah, I could see that. Now, Lolita is a film I still struggle with. (laughs) And, you know, I have not read um, the novel yet. I will someday. It's just something like, yeah, I know it's a masterpiece. I know everybody loves it. And it's one of, Mm -hmm. you know, so many, some of my friends, you know, cite it as one of their favorite novels um, but it's you know again it's, maybe it is just as simple as like the subject matter is off-putting um, but in this case I don't know why because I, I love James Mason I love him as an actor especially in something like Nicholas Ray's Bigger Than Life I think it's a great performance and I think he's a consistently great actor and everything I've seen him in thumbs mm-hmm. up here I don't know why I just this time I wasn't as emotionally invested in him and I wish, like, the idea of presenting this story is to create empathy in the viewer to, to like, just look past, you know, the, his choice and realize he's a flawed guy making bad decisions, and you know, it, that's that's commendable. I always think, like, you know, the the one of the best examples of something similar is what Todd Salons did in Happiness with Dylan Baker's character. Uh huh. You know. I found myself moved practically to tears when he's talking with his son about why he's a pedophile. And that's something like I never would have expected because it's just so hard for me to connect, <laughs> you know, have empathy or compassion for somebody who's sexually attracted to younger people. Mm-hmm. So, in this it's like I, I may, maybe it is again a lot like Spartacus. Kubrick was compromised. He was told you have to cut things back, and you can't adapt the novel fully, and you know show certain scenes because it was that those were the times. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a reason why if they even come close to kissing, we fade to black. Right. You know? So I mean, maybe that it is just because of the censorship involved that it does feel a little hushed, a little muted here. With that said, Peter Sellers. What can you say? It's worth seeing for Peter Sellers. Ah, very interesting.
1: I, because um, uh, yeah, I, I kind, because uh, I would really disagree on that. I, I found Peter Sellers in that uh, Peter Sellers is it
0: kind of a caricature? Kind he of is, oof,
1: he is. He was incredibly insufferable. He to me, he felt uh, especially his that, which is an interesting choice in the beginning of the movie. How it starts with. With uh, his uh, his um, uh, quilty character apparently doing every everything out of the attention deficit disorder rule book to try and get away from <laughs> to try and get away from Humbert Humbert and like yeah. and I get the and I get the sense that like. That most, if not all, of was like Peter Sellers just literally, w- literally winging it. Um, um, that's what he does. And and it's an interesting choice to start the movie because you're and put because I have not read the I've not read the novel myself, so I don't know if that's st- if it starts up with that framing. Device. I don't remember
0: it, I don't remember it starting that way in the Adrian Lyne version that came out with Jeremy Irons who. I don't know. Maybe it's just because it's Jeremy Irons. I I, I felt more emotionally invested in him in that version. I mm-hmm. wasn't too crazy about the girl. I don't remember. Her. I think it was Dominique Swain. Dominique I, Swain. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And I just I don't know. She wasn't that strong. But Jeremy, you know, Jeremy Irons is so good in that movie. Yes. That it's it was easy for me to latch onto him in that film. Mm-hmm. Whereas like there is kind of a disconnect for me with James Mason. and I can't say why. Maybe mm. I'll feel differently again when I rewatch it. But. At the same time, it was kind of like, oh, well, he's just a poor schlub, and I don't care. <laughs> ah.
1: ah, no, I, I treat it as like I mean, I kind of tr- like treat the a Lolita as a as just expressly as expressly comic. Maybe it was a dry okay. run. Maybe it was a dry run from like uh, right. I mean, I I treat it as a kind of a contemporary. This may be a bit of a jump, but it's to um Edward Woodward's character in The Wicker Man. Like, Ooh, okay, like because Ooh. like it's uh, you're you're supposed to mine territory that audiences find salacious, but you have an incredibly stuff a person who seems uh, an actor or who gives off a vibe of stuffy of stuffy British reserve, um, but he has a secret kind of longing that is more perverse than than yeah. than than than, uh, than the environment which Kubrick depicts in a garish. Excessively loud mm-hmm. um, um, uh, uh, and um, and incredibly fake kind of um, uh, manner in in Lolita.
0: Yeah, you and, can't trust a book, but you know, can't judge a book by its cover, right? Yeah, I
1: exactly. Can, yeah. Like just the way, just like like Shelley Winter's is such a monstrous oh, figure. Oh yeah, in the, she's, in, she's great.
2: too.
1: <laughs> just the the way the way of her like I, I dime of, store sophistication.
0: I kind of find the over the top acting in this. To be pretty pleasurable to watch, and I don't, and maybe it's like James Mason does seem so reserved and kind of, you know, more grounded. Mm. That I don't know, maybe like maybe Kubrick's intention is to sort of make a perverse, you know, comedy, yeah, dark comedy here.
1: Yeah, he's he doesn't come across for me. His character doesn't come across like as a guy who's is a threat to is a threat to Lolita or to or to or like as unlike Irons in the the um, reboot to himself. Yeah. You know, like, in yeah. fact, like, it seems like, it seems like, um, Quilty is just this, uh, just this like evil metaphysical imp for a lot of, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like he's, he's, pre- he's appears in all these uh, locations in ways that, that don't seem to make sense. And I don't think are even meant to necessarily make sense. They're like, like he appears as a sort of an anti-conscience to just basically be like a part of, um. Uh, Mason's like worst nature, and, and the way, and the way how like Sellers is tall, and 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 Mason is short. The contrast is sure. probably uh, the uh, probably has some. Uh, there's probably a lot of um uh, purpose behind that, and um, it also kind of reminds me of the kind of weird relationship held by um, um Lancaster Dobbs and Freddie Quell in the oh Master. Oh boy,
0: oh boy. You know, like the
1: <laughs> like the ba- the the uh, the guy who like uh, the guy who the um, the Master or the uh, or the would-be-refined person, mm-hmm. like, knows is wrong in every level, and yet he can't keep him away.
0: Yeah, the id versus the ego kind of dichotomy going on. I can see that a little bit, yeah, for sure. It's just, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of, I don't know, maybe it's partially its length, partially its, you know, certain scenes I felt like could have been more pointed and direct and felt compromised, um, you know, like there, I, there's a scene where he's, you know, making out with with Shelley Winters, and you cut you pan over to the picture. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that like Kubrick really wanted to linger on that longer, but he couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I do like I do like his his playfulness with a line like "I take your queen" when he's playing yep. chess. Mm. So I, I mean that stuff like that is is, is endearing. Um, it's just you know, gosh, you know the the, the, the subject of this story is so I I'm, I'm guessing because I've I've heard that the book is described as a dark comedy too mm-hmm. so it's it's possible that it is a very you know faithful in tone but it I'm you know, obviously certain scenes were excised yeah and that's you know that's okay for 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 the times you kind of expect that too mm-hmm mm-hmm and he's like yeah and it's it's right it seems to me it's just like
1: just just really just traffic in like just uh, like in a in a very much of a comedy of manners for for um, uh, Mason's character, he's he's yeah. like just just. He he's the, he's getting defeated from within and with within and without and he's but and he's such a guy that's just like the, he has these like sad puppy dog eyes of like why is this all why is this stuff befall why yeah. is this stuff all befalling me
0: It's like Charlie Brown or something. <laughs> right? Yeah, right, right. The the oh, the petter the uh, Charlie Brown. Yeah. <laughs> Good grief. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, as you know, it's a it's an okay dark comedy, but man, do we get to um, one hell of a dark comedy. After this, yeah, arguably the greatest dark comedy slash war satire ever made. It's a pivotal film in Kubrick's career, since you know it's sort of um, it was an early example of just how bleak he could be while injecting levity and kind of absurd humor. Um, he's able to tackle an immensely controversial and scary topic with. Playfulness at the same time Mm -hmm. with farce. Um, It's almost disarming. It's like a, it's like a weird back and forth experience where you're horrified that this could happen, but you're laughing through the terror. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, maybe you felt a little conflicted about Peter Sellers and Lolita, but I imagine here you feel differently. Oh, well, oh, for sure. I this and
1: this is a case where I would have loved to see his take on uh, Major Kong. He was supposed to be uh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. play play Major Kong, but he felt he couldn't he couldn't do the accent. Um, uh, but I would have loved to have seen his attempt, even in like an out, even in an outtake, right? Um, uh, and his like. What's the, what's the name of the actor who plays? Um, um, was um, because he has a funny name and he, I can't remember. Right, what he right, is. right. He the the Blazing Saddles. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Ah. that's okay. Don't worry about it. But like he's we'll come um. Uh, but the he <laughs> that film reminds me of like sometimes when you go and you see a horror movie, and you see something really nasty, the crowd goes and like uh, reacts with laughter, and I think that's because laughter and the and horror are both these kind of involuntary reactions of something that you get right and that immediately pops into your head that you can't yeah. rectify and you have to solve you have to resolve it in your own head some way and sometimes the wires sometimes the wires get crossed yeah. with with the with the nuclear threat that was looming in that th- at the exact moment the film was made. Everyone was very familiar with resolving it in that way, but then Kubrick just goes right to me, right to the border of like showing how close it is to having humor as a rea- humor as a reaction to it, and um, and I mean it tapped. I mean it, t- and and the best kind of humor to me seems to go and go when you reflect on what why you're laughing. It's because it reflects a, a true a true insight, and to which. He puts it, in, he puts out the, uh, an insight in a way, in exactly the right way that people could appreciate it. Mm-hmm. The idea that, like, because we were giving a steady diet of propaganda about how these are all serious people who are seriously considering these threats, uh, seriously considering these threats, and, um, uh, and I think in the back of everyone's heads, there was a little sense of, like, no, there's just guys. They're yeah. They're they have their own like they have their own little uh flaw, their own flaws, their own quirks, and um uh, and maybe nobody is really minding the store.
0: Yeah, in a way, it's it's funny because I I, I thought of Joe Dante's matinee with like the duck and cover videos, like right. the, the kids sort of like not knowing how to feel about it. Like part of them wants to laugh at how silly they seem, Mm -hmm. but then they think about it and they go, oh shit, what if this really happens? Do we really duck and cover? Is that really going to save us? You know? So like, it's interesting that you approach this subject matter with this type of humor. And it's so effective on both levels. Like it's so like, I don't necessarily like laugh out loud at every single thing. Except maybe the phone call with the president. You know? uh-huh. I mean, obviously that is like that's almost like Woody Allen, or you know, that's like a classic kind of almost like a sketch or something. A
1: Bob Newhart special. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, totally. So I mean, that's that whole sequence is is almost like a laugh riot, and you know, you got lines like "You can't fight in here; it's the war room." You, you, <laughs> you know, you can't you can't get past like the satire and, and how ingenious it is, but it's also the construct in which Kubrick made this and, you know, mm. having Peter Sellers depict machine men in various aspects from a weak president to the strange wheel, wheelchair bound doctor who cannot control his arm from, you know, from the Nazi salute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, I mean, it's like, it's really, and just the different set pieces, including like, like, I had completely forgotten, like, oh, my God, there's, like, kind of an action-packed confrontation with Sterling Hayden's character in this as well that's kind of, like, jarring. Yeah. Too. So you have, like, you know, three different, you know, environments that you have to process that is – and they're all really – effective again yeah. you know i mean i've used that word a lot but
1: that's just well it's well right i mean he's he it's it's an ex- i think um uh strange love is a strange love is a uh the his his mastery is like like kind of coming to like fruition yeah. in just the kind of like in just a sense of like how he can use the whole frame to go and like hit people on a level that they don't even, that maybe they're not even realizing it. Like like,
0: working on a subconscious level almost.
1: Yes, that's right. Like, like there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a a sense of, there's a sense of, of real true. There's a sense of truth that just comes from the fact that the war room is in fact, not a room at all. It's all black space. Right. And except they're all around in a big circle. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and it, and it, it's such an interesting contrast to me with Sterling Hayden's incredibly long table, as befitting so another long concern of his. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, all the the whole basis the whole basis has all these really long corridors and hallways to just kind of reflect this kind of labyrinth thinking that's or attempted thinking that's going on over there.
0: Boy, that's so apparent in all of his movies. Really, right? Like labyrinth hallways and long rectangular mm-hmm. monoliths. Right, right. <laughs> And that, feel, right, the feeling of, right, he's
1: able to, like, draw out, he's able to draw out the tension from the kind of, from the kind of sense of distance, you in, a, in, a, in with drip by drip by drip, not all at once. In yeah, a, in but a,
0: I also think, like, in this, too, it's sort of expressing a fear of technology and how it can go to these extremes. You know, as much as, like, I think he embraces it, it's also like, wait a minute, guys, be aware of all facets here. Be aware of what it can do to us. But at the same time, look how ridiculous war is. Like, I like the idea of, you know, laughing at something so horrific. (laughs) I just like, I mean, some people might find that insensitive too, but it's just, I, I think whenever I hear about certain extremes we've gone to in our nation's history, it's so horrific and so shocking and so horrifying part of me wants to just laugh that it ever took place because like who what how can we get this inhumane and how can we get to the point where we have no empathy and no compassion
1: that's that's right that's right the laughter is the closest way for realization because yeah. the, because the actual thinking that like that, that such a maddening thing happened from people who were really really dedicated to and doing the right thing <laughs> and right the right the thought that that, that this was actually r- people working at their height of rationality and forethought and insight and it got to this point that is literally harder for our heads to 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 hold than the idea of, no it's all it's all it's all completely a joke right. that's why i think strange love hits it so hits it so well yeah. and it and it does it so, i mean and that also shows the value of like of like when you have a straight man a straight man is is essential to a good comedy team and with with, with strange you got a great straight director you you That's don't, we, it does not, is not half as funny as, it does not get half as funny as it is, unless you have, unless you have, like, an absolute dedication to showing that bomber crew exactly right, to showing all the absolute, to show all the absolute intricacies of getting a, the code. Yeah. Like, um, all that is critical for when of, you, for um, when you find out that it's, like, purity of essence.
0: Right. The, the <laughs> steps to dropping that bomb, and James Earl Jones, of all people, helping That's out right. there. That's right. Um, Well, it's actually a rainbow coalition.
1: (laughs) That bomber is all like all different Americas. In fact, in fact, that's one of the great lines that um uh, that, uh, the ca- that the that uh, the the pilot says. It's like he says, "Now you guys will all get a bunch of great. Uh, me- I'm sure you'll get a great bunch of medals here, and you know, and we're doing our mission regardless of your co- race, color, or creed. Yep. you know, it's just like the most like uplifting kind of thing
0: than for the most nefarious of ants. Right? No kidding. <laughs> I mean, as much as you know, Peter Sellers is great. George C. Scott in this is kind of a marvel. In terms of, I, I you know like he, he obviously he's he's the master of histrionics and getting over the top and crazy and wild, but to see like almost like a really wide eyed physical, you know arms flailing kind of performance from him is something I'd never seen before. And what's really funny is reading the fact that these were supposed to be warm up takes and these are the ones that Kubrick used. Yeah. Which is really funny. Like he said, okay, for these takes, just act as crazy as you can. You know, this is just a warm up. And George C. Scott was pissed when he saw this final movie. Because <laughs> really? like he yeah. he did probably more relaxed and you know, George C. Scott esque kind of takes after the ones that you see in the movie. <laughs> um so Kubrick sort of fucked with George C. Scott. He manipulated him. He's like, act as crazy as you can right now. Don't worry. Those won't be used. And then he actually used those.
1: Tapes. Huh, that's an inter- that's an interesting uh like a freaking, like trick. I didn't know yeah. that he was uh, I didn't know he was uh, uh doing that continuously the Jersey Scott. I had heard that like there's a sequence where he's uh where in his eagerness to point out the big board, like he uh Jersey Scott falls and makes a tumble and then gets back up and it still remains pointing and that that was literally an accident, but right. they just kept that they just kept that in the movie. Yeah. And I mean and, like when you talk about like the way People don't appreciate how technology is used. You can't get more than like than than like George C. Scott, the embodiment. Like he is. It kind of reminds me of a of a great film that's out in theaters today, The Big Short, which I think is very much a contemporary of Strange Love, taking a a situation that people think is complicated and serious, and then showing that the right way of treating it is like no, there's a bunch of idiots behind the wheel, and like and 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 like um and. Boy, do you get that with, with, uh, um, with, um, uh, Buck Turgidson. He's he is like the epitome to me of like a of a horny twelve year old who suddenly is in yeah. charge of a of a military organization. Like, and and like
0: he gets he, so excited the
1: idea of like we got to get ten women in those bunkers. That's right. <laughs> he, he's so I mean he is captivating in every moment of that of the, of it. like like even when the background he's just happily chewing gum. Um, yeah. uh, like he's, he's bug eyed aghast when the when the, when the he let they let the dirty rust uh, the dirty Tommy's into the war room, like, um, and just the exultation. like, no, he can see the big board (laughs) (laughs) with all the, like, with all the seriousness that you would get for like having your like nephew, uh, keep you away from his mint action figures, collection, you know?
0: Yeah. And this is probably, I mean, I'm sure like there are other examples of Kubrick's amazing use of music earlier on than this. I can't think of specific examples, but the song at the end of passive glory of course oh yeah 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 of course well yeah i think just like um his his choices obviously for you know the bomb dropping and and uh, the final song and this is kind of like here you're in the you're in the hands of a master who knows how to use the right song at the right time we'll meet again it's just, like, such a beautiful moment.
1: Yeah, that's it's, right. And it, and a beautiful image, actually. Just these, yeah. all these pleasant mushrooms on a yeah. flat landscape.
0: <laughs> but you know, a beautiful song to sort of, like, counteract that in a way. It's just, like, it complements it and just kind of, like, um, hmm. I'm trying to think of the word. But <laughs> it's just... It leaves on a weirdly positive
1: note. Yeah. It's, like, akin to, like, don't this is... I feel
0: depressed. <laughs> it's, like,
1: uh, 20 or 30 years before the... Um, um, uh before the life of brian's always look on the bright side of yes, life yes
0: yes exactly good good call
1: yeah he's um uh, uh and, and like and and just like i think both it has a kind of romantic kind of feeling but then also kind of a, the loungy opening with the uh with the uh bomber getting its uh getting a deposit is right. like i mean that was one of the very first to like really go freudian in terms of people's in terms of in terms of people's motivations mm-hmm. and and like uh, yeah, and just the, lots of I,
0: essays about phallic symbols with the bomb. <laughs> And uh Peter Sellers standing up at the end. Yeah. Just like yeah, it right. really got Freudian like uh, throughout heck, heck, this movie. P- predated
1: predated idiocracy by sixty years by just having the virtue by Mandrake <laughs> and by having that mustache and talking in a funny accent, yeah. he's being accused of being a prevert <laughs> by by Colonel Bat Guano.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and who, who who like can't even get into a phone booth until like uh until like hey, if you do any perversions in there, I'll blow your head off. But like and I mean, it leads to one of my favorite lines, which is just like again, so much ahead of its time, like they were in the, at that time, they were in the height or the ascendancy of the Mad Men era. So the consequences of advertising were just beginning to be full, like addressed in like a philosophical way. Oh, but yeah. then Kubrick gives the whole audience a shot when like, uh, when, when, um when Mandrick asks Gua- uh, back Guano to fire into the Coke machine to get changed to right. make this <laughs> urgent phone call. And then he says, you're going to have you know, to answer the Coca Cola. <laughs> You're gonna to have to answer to Coca Cola Corporation. Yep. That's right. And, and and I mean, just and that's just a great way of like how you have this the straight the straightness of the direction. Yeah. There is nothing in that. I don't think there's anything in the movie where it's where it's where with the exception of of the ride down with the bomb. Like, which was done for expressly com- for expressly comic effect. Sure, you just have like Sterling Hayden could have been done as like he's lit like Marlene Dietrich when he makes his state when he makes his big statement to why right. he's doing this, and he's giving all these boilerplate as to how you know our country can't be defeated should not can't be defeated. We can't afford to let the let the other side win, and then he drops about our precious bodily fluids.
0: If Mel Brooks had directed this movie, it'd be completely different in tone.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. And I mean, I think, and and so it's, I mean, it has a feeling that will just even last, even last today because it's so, it's so good at evoking the kind of, the kind of silliness of people's motivations, but taking people's sillinesses seriously. Actually, Roger Ebert had a really great quote about it. Like he says, comedy is like Dr. Strangelove is not like bad comedies, which is where people wear funny hats. Comedy is, like, about people who wear hats that they don't realize are
0: funny. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. And a good place for us to pause... Boy Al We're gonna do this now It's a film called 2001 Have you heard of it? (laughs) It's quite the odyssey Right, yes Uh, I I only wish I'd seen the first 2000
1: movies Uh So I can get caught up
0: (laughs) Yeah, and then nine sequels came out that uh were buried into obscurity and then we got two thousand ten. Right, right. Yes, one of those one of those movies that like uh while I've
1: while it's supposedly pretty good, it clearly was some fanciful creation that never existed because there was never any sequels to two thousand one in movie or book form or in any <laughs> other form.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Kubrick, what have you done here? Well you said um It's like I'm talking to him in the afterlife or something. (laughs) He left the meaning of this film completely up to the viewer, and God bless him for it. Um, I mean, obviously, it's like so easy to just like, let's dive into the last act. What the hell does it mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know? But, you know, you can easily just like talk about the innovation um, behind the effects, his use of classical music, the sound design. The monolith itself. I mean, I just... There are moments throughout this entire movie where my jaw is on the floor. Can I piece together the entire film in terms of what it's trying to say thematically as a whole? Hmm. I guess I just don't know where logically what happens in the last act. You know, I'm, I'm able to follow it from point A to point B to point C up until... The, let's just call it the acid trip sequence. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know? when, when you're going when you're going to have a chapter in your story called Going Beyond Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite.
0: Yeah.
1: I'll be okay, darned okay. if okay. I'll be darned if he didn't do just that. Mm-hmm. I mean, like to me 2001 is uh, like the greatest film that's been made so far and for a whole number is of reasons. Is it your favorite movie? Um, it is my favorite movie. Oh wow! Yeah, it's uh, it is. Um, uh, I mean, for a whole number of reasons, and one of which is that like I'm kind of like shocked that human beings made it. <laughs> I'm maybe, maybe That's how I feel it. when it's over. Yeah, I mean, like who could who could have thought who could have thought of it who could have put it together who could have made like such a such a composition where like it has moments of of effects that were invented that still hold up today and yet when he when the story or the path that the the path that the movie takes you requires it you get the most amazing co- collections of color and light which is like the basic building blocks of film and yeah. and present it in a way that will blow your mind no matter what drugs you may or may not be taking at the time. <laughs> like as, as for what, as for what to is, as happens in the end. I mean, and it ties into like what I think Kubrick kind of brilliantly did on the story, which he could collaborated with Arthur C. Clark. Uh, I have to admit to cheating a little bit because after I had seen that initial reel at the museum of science and industry, I got the book before and, and to the extent that Does the book make more sense? The book yes, the book makes gives you one very logical plausible explanation for all the events that happen in the story. Aliens? Um they are considered to be aliens. That's right. Okay. And um and according to the book, um um it is um when Bowman arrives like after this Crazy visual sequence where you don't know how to even fit these these images in your own head. Mm-hmm. But then he arrives at a what appears to be like a Victorian a Victorian um uh, uh drawing room, and he then sees himself in different uh, as uh, progressively older, and then finally as he's like apparently nearing his dying moments, he the monolith makes a re- the monolith makes a reappearance. In the book, the book's explanation is that the aliens had had signals upon like how society upon how society like was like what civilization would have been like for for like the human history up to that point that got that had gotten broadcast along in the when the um, one monolith was on earth, on earth on the surface
0: i am and, and sabotaging this there. podcast i live inside your computer jim i'm afraid i'm afraid jim jim My mind is going, I can feel it, I can feel it, my mind is going, there is no question about it, I can feel it, I can feel it, I can feel it, I'm afraid. Jim, stop. So this is a first in podcast recording history in which an entire 90 minutes of the episode was somehow corroded and roboticized. I'm convinced that Hal or the monolith interfered. That's my only theory. Uh, The show must go on. We are re-recording half of the episode, leaving off where we were... We talked about... um, I think we were touching on Arthur C. Clarke's book, in which... We found out in that version, aliens are somehow involved with the monolith's appearance. Now, I don't have nearly as much experience with 2001 as Al does, so I was more curious as to his insights into what Arthur C. Clarke's intent was when writing the book. Ah, well, um...
1: Well, yes, it's uh, none of these insights are my own. It's like it's, in, uh, but they are all from uh, what Arthur C. Clarke's Arthur C. Clarke is very, very di- unlike Kubrick's work. It's a very, very direct, logical, and very, um, uh, and uh, very accessible take on the events that happened in two thousand one. Right, and um, like one or what some some of the ambiguities, uh, and uh, and multiple perspectives that you have from the movie, um. Clark gives, um, Clark gives some, uh, uh, very plausible and rational explanations for it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, many, many people, um, I, uh, definitely myself included have been very, uh, confused as to what the ending could be or, lo- or think of the possibilities of it. Um, uh, to, to sum up, for those who haven't seen it, it's after passing through that su- after passing through a. Uh, sequence uh, through uh, of an infinite display on colors and light and, and motion um, they uh, arrive at what appears to be like a uh, Victorian or French style drawing room right. where David Bowman uh, sees himself through different ages t- uh, 20 or so years at a time until he um, is lying in bed and then the monolith makes an appearance he reaches for it when it cuts back to the bed and it's a child, and then that star child makes a reappearance with the moon and the earth at the end of the film,
0: and color me perplexed.
1: Right, <laughs> right. It's a uh, right. It's um uh, uh, one of the one of the big curveballs in a movie that's full of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, in Arthur C. Clarke's um uh, novelization of the of the work, which uh, was a very unique collaboration, by the way, whereas whereas. Uh, Clark and Stanley Kubrick collaborated simultaneously on the screenplay for the movie and uh, and the book and on the book forum. And Clark released the book and Kubrick released the movie. In the book, um they it's uh the explanation is that it is a sort of a um a um zoo slash observation kind of room for the um uh, for for Bowman where the alien forces are observing him right giving him what they feel he needs and watching him through watching him play out his whole existence through it it's over on like it's on the surface of a the surface of a world that where they duplicate this um environment hmm. and so it is uh, clear in at least in the book that it's an experiment experimentation slash observation thing that the aliens do to Bowman.
0: You know, it sort of reminds me of what Carl Sagan sort of did with uh, Contact, and that the aliens there sort of tried to recreate a beach environment from from Jodie Foster's past, and had an alien take you know form of her father. I mean, obviously Zemeckis is the sunnier, more um, concise and simple version of what space travel could be like in which you know it's like it's very surface level it's very let me explain things to you throughout as opposed to someone like kubrick who really wants to keep things uh puzzling and ambiguous for the viewer to sort of project their own interpretation onto and you know for me like i my interpretation of the ending was more of like a spiritual transcendence onto a higher plane of consciousness but that could also be like, oh, you know, I associate it too with people taking acid, and you know? Because uh-huh. everybody always talks about that experience. In fact, they were going to pull this movie from theaters and theater owners were like, no, 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 don't because hippie kids are coming in here and having amazing experiences watching this movie, so don't pull it from the theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it's possible that, yeah, you know, similar to what Jodie Foster goes through, like a, some sort of wormhole or portal um. You know, he, that's, that's what happens to this character in 2001, and then it's like a projected experience, maybe from the mind's eye, or it could be a literal travel he embarks on courtesy of some aliens, but it's just not spelled out to you.
1: Mm-hmm. However,
0: and I think we talked about this in the first conversation, was Kubrick's original idea for the monolith and that he was projecting actual images onto the monolith, right? That was one of
1: the first uh, in the, some of the early earlier drafts of the screenplay for two thousand one. Right. When the uh, apes first encounter the monolith, um, uh, there were er- uh, there were early plans that um, various images would appear upon the uh, fa- uh, otherwise faceless black surface, uh, images that would demonstrate uh, tool use and. Mm-hmm. And uh, and how you can use the environment, and how to hunt, and uh, and uh, and uh, get better, get better food, and 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 different different principles that, while still rendered abstractly, were still go- were still making apparent that the monolith was teaching or instructing, and um that's actually part of what I part of what I think makes this movie just an uh, put an extra level of brilliance was Kubrick's insight to reduce these elements and from when you when you remove that from um the monolith doesn't become like doesn't become one thing it becomes a this just very rare item of being simultaneously an icon yeah. but an icon that can you can look at different ways sure. depending upon depending upon like your different perspective on it
0: yeah i mean a, a different director maybe someone like zemeckis would have chosen that route to insert actual imagery onto the monolith, but here Kubrick sort of removed that. And, you know, as I'm watching it this time, I was thinking of the monolith as a big movie screen or, you know, and even in the case of my own TV, it looks like a monolith and it's projections and dimensions and stuff like that. So, and uh, you know, I know the way this movie plays, especially when it plays in seventy millimeter. It starts off with the overture, <laughs> right, right. You know, so that that haunting piece uh, by by what's his Gr- name, Gregory Ligeti, I yeah, believe. Yeah, Ligeti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that you know that plays whenever the monolith appears, correct?
1: <laughs> right, right. That's <laughs> right. That's so cool. Like you're big, right every time the every time it appears, you have this music and what the overture you have this strange music playing and right you as yeah. an audience member are staring at a, br- a monolith at a, <laughs> at a faceless black rectangular figure the first yeah. monolith the first monoliths could be delivered to an audience without them even noticing yeah
0: <laughs> yeah and i think that's i th- i think that's intentional i think kubrick is he's always been kind of playful with the audience even in a movie that's kind of mostly serious like 2001 you know even even a moment like the the instructions for using the toilet I yes, think right. that's that's his sense of humor. That's him, like, commenting on how absurd uh, society can get and how detailed he can get. Um, almost like making fun of himself, I think,
1: to some degree. <laughs> right, right. What is that they say about um, uh, um Like, uh, what God can laugh at you. The best way you can get God is laughing at you is making a plan. Yeah. I, I think maybe, <clears throat> pardon me, so many things that Kubrick has, has done in 2001 especially is about, like, this kind of... This kind of contradiction, uh, this fundamental mm-hmm. contradiction of how can people go and like make these just amazing things and have such a level of control on an environment in some ways, and just in the ways that they're inadequate, I- inadequate, and then the ways that they break down, um, and um, and yeah, you're in. It's just great that when you're in the middle of seeing these just amazing imagery to get yourself out to the um, uh, um, to the uh, spinning base, like you're gonna see a. a what, a 12 or 13 step instruction of how to, of how to use a toilet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, but then at to the say which can be ironic as well is that it's uh, just an acknowledgement of just the sheer yeah. mechanics of like how, of the biology of uh, biology of people, just the way that people's physical forms are like hmm. need to adapt to the environment is another one of the things that 2001 looks
0: at. Oh, for sure. I think he's very interested in paradoxes and just the, the, the human experience in trying to process those paradoxes. And I think he's constantly wrestling with those philosophical ideas in such a you know, complex way that it's hard to, to gauge on a first viewing. Even somebody like you know, Woody Allen, who's a cinephile, f- saw this movie at first, didn't like it. He's like, you know what? Everybody's saying it's so great. I better go see it again. And he saw it again and loved it. So, and and that's kind of the case for me because my first experience of this was very dismissive. I mean, I did see it when I was young and kind of more into escapist science fiction. You know, your are Star Trek and Last Starfighter and you know, certain movies that had a lot of energy to them and like a quote unquote hero. But when I first saw this movie, I kind of gave it the middle finger and felt like this director is too intellectual and too and kind of like being deliberately mind fucky with me and I didn't like it. It was like, I felt like I was being manipulated and it didn't feel pleasurable to me. And plus I found it kind of slow. And a lot of people I know who don't connect with this movie just can't get on board with its pacing in particular.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah. Sometimes you encounter like a film where, um, uh, where it's, it's, apparent the kind of level where it will it where it will engage you as an audience member it it has a sensibility that it'll go and satisfy things that you expect yeah. and and then you see other films which are which are um uh don't uh, which are cl- clear that the movie is its own thing and it will remain its own thing, and it's up to you as an audience person to let it let go of your expectations and see where the see where the movie takes you right. I mean, the beginning of two thousand one it's i mean I actually kind of think I can understand being uh irked by it, but it actually is not i don't know if it comes from any sort of uh pretension in the sense that. It's uh, it, because not a lot is happening. <laughs> it's yeah. it's a, a lot of, of just pr- of the ape, pr- primitive man-like behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you don't have any idea when things, uh, for all you know as an audience member, watching that that first time without knowing any of the movie. Right. It, might go for, it might go
0: for two hours. For, I know. For something like that, you know? It's, my brain wasn't ready for it the first time I saw it. And then by the second time, I was like, this is clearly a masterpiece even if, you know, I'm still perplexed by the way it ends. And I find that great. I actually love revisiting this movie and look forward to dissecting dissecting it at different points in my life because I feel like I'd get a different feeling from it each time. Um, in the same way, like, I, I know people were very turned off by, you know, a, a particular midsection in The Tree of Life by Terrence Malick where mm-hmm. it sort of goes on this detour. Um, where you get to see the cosmos and you get to see dinosaurs interacting with one another, and people found that to be irksome as well. But I, I kind of embraced it almost immediately. Whereas 2001, I was like, "What is this?" <laughs> more than anything else, it felt like a monolith. It felt like an anomaly at the time, uh-huh. <laughs> which now I, I openly look forward to. I'd rather have, um, you know, more experiences like watching 2001 than you know another. You know, ridiculous, subpar horror movie, or a dirty grandpa, or the million things that get you know thrown into the multiplexes now. There should be more challenging, um, existential think pieces in a way that you know really make you think about your place in the cosmos, and that's what Kubrick is interested in.
1: Yeah, and um, well, and there's actually. and you there's great and amazing things that will uh, that I think people will ent- be entertained by and enjoy and yeah. even find insight with that um uh that uh, d- that don't find an audience or don't get a reception because they don't fit a convention that people are uh, people are uh, familiar with and right. that's that's a bit of a shame if there's a if there's a po- i mean if there's a possibility to go and like um uh give people like not just a signpost to these movies in general and also an idea of that uh, just an idea of where like uh that this requires um a little like uh uh of a more audience like openness to what it's the movie itself is trying to do mm-hmm. rather infamously for tree of life there were theaters which Literally had to post a notice. I know,
0: that's so sad. So Wait, sad. It, I mean I understand why.
1: Yeah. And and yeah, in one in one way you can say it is sad, but in another way you can also say that like it's it helps sometimes to tell people this is not this is not a usual kind of, a usual kind of movie and I think like it, it kind of leads to an, a uh, um, kind of a theory that I I like to have which is the idea that like every movie is in actuality like two movies like there's a movie that you see when you don't know the details about it like how it ends or what the different plot moments are and then but, but when you see the movie again and you do know the scope of it you do know some of the aims that the movie's trying to do. You can you get a complete can get a completely different perspective on something like that. So yeah. many of the first impressions that happened from two thousand one are a result of critics who were known to have think of film in terms of like a story uh, films of a storytelling a thing. conventional
0: I'm, narrative exactly yeah. a
1: sense of like what comes next what is a, is a certain methods of establishing what is important mm-hmm. and what and um, and what you can like uh, elide over right and. Um, and they didn't know what to to do on that the first time you see it. That's why the second viewing has such a dramatically different effect.
0: And I think that should be the case for a lot of movies. You know, I mean, you walk into certain movies with pre-expectations and preconceived notions. And then I think the second viewing, like there's there's probably a lot of examples of this where I'll watch it a second time knowing what I'm in for and I'll have a completely different read and I'll have a completely different emotional response to it. Um, And probably Malick's one of those examples, I would say. Like sometimes, you know, obviously like an early movie like Badlands, it's pretty pretty conventional, but at the same time, his later films are shocking in how unconventional they are and how challenging they are. And I think like even his latest film sort of follows in the tradition of Tree of Life and To the Wonder – to where it's like, I have to prepare myself now. This is not something I want to watch when I'm sleepy and not ready to, you know, turn my brain off. <laughs> so, I, 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 I obviously, I, I welcome that experience. Now, um, did you um, actively love 2001 the first time you saw it?
1: Well, when I saw 2001, I ha- I regret to say that I did a quote-unquote cheat. In that, like, I, I, ah. I because I had read the... Um, Clark's book first. Okay. After that first, after that initial moment when um, I was at the Museum of Science and Industry and I saw the the uh, Blue Danube section, mm-hmm. I was I was enchanted by the film, but I did not get a chance to see the film before the book was available. And and reading that really sparked my interest in it. Then when I finally, when I saw the movie, I at least had that as like sort of a guidepost for for what was going on. And then, but then you were able to be more aware of all the other things that the other things that are that the film is doing. It's really reassuring for when you have the book, for example, to know that eventually they do get the space, and you're not going to be watching two hours of primitive man footage. <laughs> that's that's big help, and it's cool for people yeah. to know that.
0: Yeah, no, it, it sort of gives you the blueprints in advance, and that certainly would be helpful. I didn't know what I was in for. I think because it was in the science fiction section. I just was like, okay, maybe this will be like life force. I don't know, <laughs> you know. Right. I'm expecting constant energy from it. And, and what I what I fell in lo-
1: I when I fell in love with in 2001, but that to from maybe from even love into adoration <laughs> was sure. the Stargate sequence because it's one thing to practically describe that sequence in a book in a book form, and it's an- it's another to go and see it for the first time. But yet another to know something like that's going to happen, and literally yeah. have the audiovisual spectacle that comes before your eyes
0: exceed your whatever your imagination could have thought of. Absolutely. That's a gift. And I think that this is possibly. I mean, I think there's examples of it in The Killing and Doctor Strange Love and Paths of Glory, but this is probably one of the first times where I can pinpoint specific choices in framing and geometry with Kubrick, where it's like, um, you know, he's so precise with where he places the camera and why things are so centered and why a character is centered in the way that he is. It's just, he's so specific and uh, meticulous in that regard. And I think you mentioned that too with the last time we talked about this kind of being a very mathematical film in some regard, um, just having a, you know, I, a focus what I was, on circles yes. and yes. Well, right. Well, yeah. It, right. Um,
1: yeah. It's that's kind of one of the things that just makes this just such a superlative film is that like, whereas perhaps like uh, another film like when you. Refer to it as like ambiguous. It's it's almost like binary, or there's maybe one or two, three choices, and an outcome or something that you're seeing could be one of those things. Mm-hmm. But what I found with 2001 is this just just amazing, multifaceted. Diamond like quality right. with the with cinema light shining through it. Where like no matter what way you choose to interpret the film, like I think you'll just get something rewarded out of just thinking further about it. And the example that like comes to mind is one of my favorites is just how Kubrick like defines like the meaning, like a meaning in the film through like geometry. Like in a certain way, sometimes like people can respond often like very strongly to just like just the simplest of geometrical shapes. And like, I mean, you can even make the argument like um, maybe Colonel Baguano Guano about the Coca-Cola Corporation yeah. because they spend millions of dollars making sure the swush is that uh, exactly that format mm-hmm. and the sw- and the swish of a nike uh on a nike shoe and kubrick's 2001 is has a real big awareness of it because he makes some real distinctions on like on the on what the shapes are in the movie like the it seems to me that like the human element is defined like in a very circular manner. The circular of the satellite around the moon, the, um, the, the, the sphere in the front of the ship and its mission to Jupiter, um, the circular but yet not 100% nature of the pods themselves. And of course, like, what is hell? Hal's just a a circle. circle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The ultimate expression of what humanity's been able to build up to that point is a perfect circular figure. And so is the camera lens, and we get the point of view of Hal throughout. Sometimes
1: exactly right, and um, and then like and the monolith. In that way, it's kind of just really cool how the monolith is everything that humanity isn't. How straight it is, how narrow it is, Mm -hmm. and the and even the reflectivity of the surface looks just has a, there's a fundamental sense of other that i think is m- brought about so well by the fact that it is different like ge- geometrical but the reason why i think that's like a multifaceted kind of genius level on kubrick's part is because once you notice this this geometric distinction it's prevalent throughout the film. There's the straight el- there are straight elements that appear for a reason. There's circular elements that appear for a reason. Like one that comes to mind for me is that when ha- when Hal is getting his mind uh, upper level uh, functions disabled, it's presented in a way of these different monoliths. Square. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Just yeah. emerging from it, and and. And in, like, almost any aspect of filmmaking, like, like that you had brought up, like, in terms of the camera position, like, the symmetry of how things symmetry, are... Symmetry, that's a good that, word for it, yeah. Right, and then the, the geometry of the figures, when the camera moves or doesn't, the use of color, all these different elements that are, like, just tangentially used to influence a film are elements that you can further explore in the movie, and they derive meaning and insight and, uh, and and I would say, even enjoyment from looking at it further.
0: You can write a 20-page paper on just color or the shapes, like, you know, the, just certain facets of a Kubrick movie, and you can go ahead and do that. You can literally type in Stanley Kubrick essays and come up with hundreds and dozens and just, like, immerse yourself in all these different ideas and theories, and there's a reason for it. It's not just, like... Um, you know, crazy crackpots who have nothing better to do. There's actual, you know, symmetry to his the way his films are presented. And there's a reason why he took so much time. And he's also, um, you know, very meticulous in his research before he would embark upon a project. He would immerse himself into a subject so heavily that it was like, you know, locking himself into a library for months and reading as much as he could on a particular subject. <laughs> And I mean and he and many of the techniques the
1: special effects techniques that you see in 2001 were were pr- principles that Kubrick helped invent Vents, or yeah. progress f- progress further like the 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 so use lot of, lot like
0: Orson Wells in that regard yeah. right
1: right exactly you met not, and because if you think about it, it's really quite amazing. there's so many things in 2001 where you can think of. That's just amazing to go in that for a film to go in that direction. Look at how spectacular that intro is. Is, is there ever an intro so cosmically magnificent no nope. right and and then the, and then the Stargate sequence of course, and then the way that the it uh, curves into this uh to uh the last last moments or are they of david Bowman i mean maybe maybe like your interpretation on spiritual transcendence is a way of like
0: Whereas other people have their life
1: flash before their eyes, maybe a person, maybe his life is flashing in front of his.
0: Yeah, that could possibly be. And I think this, you know, this is a case where, you know, I'd, I'd be more than open to hearing different interpretations via email about this movie, about, especially about the ending. Like if somebody has a crazy theory or if somebody has, you know, a particular emotional catharsis, they experience watching this movie. I'd love to hear more from people on it because it's one of those movies that you want to talk with people over coffee about. It's one of those movies where you kind of go, okay, I've just experienced this, whether if it's alone or with a group of people, the moment it's over, you want to deconstruct it. And I think that's what Kubrick's intent was for the majority of his work. And I, I think that's so admirable because a lot of movies are made to be easily digestible and just like, okay, I had a great time. I escaped for two hours. Now what's for dinner? Mm -hmm. You know? So I think that's, that's why kubrick is still being talked about so much despite the fact that he's you know hasn't had a he doesn't have a hitchcockian level of films to his to his credits so yeah it's um his i mean but he he's able to like get in
1: like these images and these moments in in cinema and in a career in, in all throughout his career but yeah. it seems like in 2001 he like has a he has a gold mine of such images like there's a friend of mine who had a um has a, a book a very specific book whose entirety is still photographs <laughs> from uh, imagery from 2001 and Pretty much every single one of those is uh, um, could be like cut and pasted upon a wall with a frame on it, and it'd just be a, a, a fascinating, a fascinating photographic element. So his sure. his career as a photographer would like uh, could win out in that way. One particular image, for example, uh, in two thousand one, I find just like r- particularly potent when like uh, Frank Poole is. Um, has uh, um, been uh, um, had his wire had his air hose cut and he's float and he's floating out and Bowman comes out and rescues him. He gets he gets Poole's body back but Hal right. does not respond and then it's just a sequence of shots from all these different angles which which by the way also shows how Kubrick's choice of like doing different angles in uh, the middle section is really interesting because he's very it's very rarely level. It's always from some some strange angle. angle. Exactly, it's always from some different perspective, and which not only is like makes that very fascin- that sequence fascinating and distinct, but also kind of shows that humanity doesn't have a level footing at that exact <laughs> moment. But as it cuts from above or below the uh, a shot of the uh, of the discovery, and then the pod is right in front. And it has in its arms yeah. Pool's lifeless body. It's so particularly evocative of like of giving an offering, of going out mm. in like of going out in yeah. like um uh, and 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 the sense of a child returning something to to um its its parent or its home. But but what is that thing getting returned is it like is it um is it something i want to comment on a human on humanity or biology or and and so there's a sense of otherness to it but then a sense of like familiarity to it too that's just brought about by brought about by the shapes and the color and the frame yeah and super potent symbolism that i that you can that i find interesting if you look at it in multiple ways.
0: And I cannot wait to see this on the big screen at the music box. Yes. That's, I
1: think in like what, two or three weeks. Yeah.
0: Oh, because me? I think again, I'll probably walk out of it having uh, you know, I'll, I'll be focusing on particular details, especially ones you've brought up that I hadn't thought about. And I think that's what, you know, what makes a, you know, a conversation about this movie with different people. So, so valuable because one person can bring up one specific element that you hadn't thought about. And then the next time you watch, you'll be focusing on that. And then, you know, sort of accentuating the um, particular choice that Kubrick made to focus on something like that. And I think that can get out of hand. Obviously, if you watch Room Two Thirty Seven, you can see how that can get out of hand. Where you can, you can certainly, you know, say, okay, maybe he put that Calumet baking soda can there for a reason. Maybe this whole movie is about our slaughtering of Native Americans. You can certainly have that argument. I would not argue that you're crazy. I wouldn't say like, "That's, that's ridiculous. Because sometimes people can theorize in interesting ways that maybe you disagree with, but at the same time, they're so strong in their convictions and they come up with good reasons why they believe that. Mm -hmm. I
1: mean, I mean, ultimately, like I think the, it's, it's an interesting way in 2001, like by reducing particular details that provide for an explanation, Uh I think they allow, they allow for a particular kind of value that comes from multiple examinations that, that, that can lead to their like, that can lead to their own reward. Um, you're, it's kind of reminds me on like the much controversial ending to, um, uh, uh, the Sopranos. There are people who are absolutely insistent that um, Tony survives that incident. There's people who are equally insistent that he does not survive. Ah, but I, to me, I kind of take it that I kind of really like the, um, su- uh, the suggestion of the creator who said, um, uh, who said maybe the person who got whacked was the audience. And maybe, that sense of dislo- <laughs> and maybe that sense of dislocation is exactly the thing that you, is one thing that you should keep in mind that you, the fact that you don't know, the awareness of you don't know is
0: a thing itself and should have value for, and should have value for it's itself as well. But we're so used as an audience to having closure. Right. And that's the same case with movies. We want an explanation. We want to know what to feel the moment we walk out of that theater. And I think Kubrick sort of defies that, which is why he has detractors. And Mm -hmm. then I can understand those detractors. Like, I wouldn't, if somebody were to walk into this apartment right now and say, you know what, Kubrick is this, and blah, 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 I don't like him. And he, you know, I could kind of, you know, sympathize with somebody, even though I completely disagree. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, in, in the case of his next film, did you have anything else you wanted to bring up about 2001? Did I have anything else on uh, 2001? Because um, I bet we could do a whole two-hour podcast, and who knows, we might even do a sequel and touch upon more theories. Well, I would go and, I mean, I would go and just say, if is there, um, I would go and ask
1: if, like, um, do you kind of think that, like, um, uh, what's your impressions on, uh, using Hal and his version of I mean his exploration of humanity kind of, uh, what what is what does it say that like so many people have called Hal the most human character the most relatable character despite the fact he's he's only a lens a a red and yellow lens what what is what is what's That's your impressions of what what are your impressions of what Kubrick was trying to say about it and um do you think the uh right entity won to get to the start yet yeah. <laughs> You if know, a, a, sent,
0: a sentient being can have more humanity, maybe, mm-hmm. than us humans. And that's kind of a scary thought because, you know, we'll touch upon this time and time again. And I'm, I'm certain that, you know, from maybe Passive Glory on, the main theme of Kubrick's work is dehumanization. And the fact that, you know, maybe all this technology has separated us from... Um, from empathy, from a sense of connectedness, Mm -hmm. and that Hal is sort of representative of, you know, a a sentient being that doesn't have to go through that cycle, that doesn't have to experience that disconnect, because he's sort of programmed in a different capacity, which I find fascinating. I I, I do find it interesting that, you know, he does have sort of a low monotone voice, but at the same time, he is feeling uh, emotion in some regard when he's being deprogrammed at the end. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, another fascinating paradox to consider when, you know, Hal does display human qualities and he's fat. He is clearly fascinated by human behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, we see that early on. Cause like I always, I always questioned why the blue Danube is playing over, you know, when we first see you know, a lot of the characters in, in, uh, in orbit, um, mm-hmm and we don't get to hear them talking to each other and then i sort of realized that you know that that can just be another sentient being that's the perspective of somebody looking on or something looking on to these characters and not hearing them talk and maybe there's a reason why we don't need to hear their dialogue spoken
1: yeah and that's and that's a, that's a great point because it come because a lot of people could definitely respond and to be off put to ha, find themselves off put by the film because it kind of seems that like kubrick goes and like has this kind of perspective that almost seems outside it's ob- it's so outside observational in. Yeah. yeah and he kind of does this really uh, his theme he does seem to do dehumanization but maybe i'd even almost call it like Deconstructo humanization in that <laughs> it's not just showing how like humans are less human, so much that he's like almost exploring the parts that make people human. Like your okay. like your comment on the toilet is, uh, is uh, of, of the tw- of the toilet with the twelve different rules. Yeah. Suddenly a, a natural process is made natural process is made weird, um, and the the different food that the astronauts have to use in the zero gravity environment. That um, uh, the multicolored paste that they have on the on the ship to <laughs> Jupiter, um, and it's it's just like very uh, f- tremendously unappetizing and and if you and yes you can go a whole show i imagine just going on that detail it would just brings up to me the one thing i would like to bring up just to kind of sum up is how it's interesting that at the very very end bowman has a re- has a real enjoyable environment or an environment that could be enjoyable. It's not completely functional. It's stuff that's aesthetically looks beautiful. He actually gets to wear a nice flowing robe. He actually gets to eat real food. He has a luxurious bed as opposed to something that looks like Steve Jobs interpretation of an iPad (laughs) coffin. Um, (laughs) It's he gets like seems to get some real humanity for whatever for whatever mm-hmm. that means or for whatever you can for whatever you can think that that means and and uh it also gets me to just think on on how how that level of appreciation is not done by Haywood Floyd Haywood sees to me dehumanization at its to me its worst the way that of a person who doesn't appreciate just the wonders of not just the the universe but of his own ability to
0: experience them. Yeah, that's why him and his crew, like he they sort of uh, you know, relegate to taking a selfie you know in front of that's, a, right. In front that's of, right in front of a monolith <laughs> right you know? exactly it becomes a right the
1: biggest creation becomes a tourist and becomes another tourist attraction yeah. and so quickly <laughs> that's yeah. a great god that's a great that's a great point
0: and that's that scares me like I I, I still imagine that if a monolith appeared in Grand Park that's what everybody would be doing <laughs> you know instead of being in awe of it or wondering what it is like oh let's go there and take selfies quick it yeah. would it would pro-
1: right it would probably not take. it would probably not take all that long soon if we how soon into space travel whenever we do get around to it will we be like haywood calling his daughter completely um uh, oblivious to the whole moon right behind (laughs) curving right behind him something that by the way audiences who had had not yet experienced a real life visit from the moon or had seen it this That blew them away just looking at it. And here's a guy who's yeah. using it to just uh, make sure your little kid gets a toy at home.
0: And that's probably why they hired him to fake the moon landing, maybe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, uh, definitely a valid, good enough reason to try it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, if I saw this movie, I'd be like, oh, yeah, he could totally shoot a moon landing and pull it off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but that's a whole other conspiracy theory for another podcast. Right. Here is a movie that, if you love it, I completely understand. And it's clockwork orange. But I kind of experience a little bit of a disconnect now. Possibly it's just its lead protagonist I have trouble empathizing with. And, you know, clearly Kubrick liked to mirror his style based on the mentality of its lead protagonist. And in this instance, it's vibrant, it's manic, it's intense. I just think the theme and thesis of the overall movie is a little heavy handed, Uh, a little surface level to a point where a priest literally comes out and says, Alex has no free will. And, you know, I know it's sort of, it's a movie that kind of plays at 11 at most of the time. Yes. Um, It's kind of an aggressive statement that just doesn't appeal to me as much as something I, maybe it's because I watched 2001 and then went directly to clockwork orange that it felt like it's antithesis antithesis. Um, And I just got more pleasure out of, like, you know, something that doesn't speak directly to its audience, where Clockwork Orange does feel like it speaks directly to its audience, what it's trying to convey at all times. Mm. Um, But at the same time, I will admit the focus on like language subversion and the linguistics of it is fascinating to me the fact that I can understand within context what each character is saying even though I've never heard these words spoken before. <laughs> right, right. And Kubrick is very playful at times with his tracking shots, you know, like the one of the record store that ends on a shot of the 2001 soundtrack. <laughs> right. So I mean, this is a, a, a essentially a pitch black comedy with a lot of social commentary that it's just very obvious in its critique on behavioralism to me.
1: Mm-hmm. It's um, uh, um, it kind of like lets me uh, looking at two thousand one, and then and then Clockwork Orange is just um, uh, uh just le- gets me to thinking about like how it's almost as if like. Kubrick took like his ideas from that interested him in both and he used the exact opposite lens to show it. Like 2001 is expansive, it's mediative. it has it breathes. That's right. It <laughs> breathes and and um and I and and its energy is is a uh, moved through is is at a at a, even as held Mm-hmm. throughout the film and it seems to Clockwork Orange he used a particular kind of lens and a particular kind of outlook yeah. and a viewpoint whereas um it's it's too much energy done with like uh done with too little time and too little space to breathe. It feels mm-hmm. it rushed. feels rushed. It feels <laughs> it feels manic. It feels colorful. I mean and and that uh, yes, it like reflecting the reflecting Alex uh, Al, Alex's approach, <laughs> um, and maybe that kind of level of obviousness. If you, I mean, if you want to be charitable, maybe that level of obviousness is just one of the components. Like that, yeah, you have people blaring out what they're <laughs> blurring out what they're doing. Um, uh, in in that in that light is in that light. In, in, I don't know. I maybe it is too charitable to say like you're being ironically completely direct by stating you know Mm -hmm. like you almost expect someone will like say the name of the movie (laughs) at (laughs) at some point
0: and in that in that kind of level um but i think it's directness can be appealing obviously this movie has a cult following for a reason so it's not to say that this is a bad movie i actually think it's a respectable well-made film that just doesn't speak to me and doesn't make me excited for rewatches in the same way that his other work is. Mm-hmm. Do you? So you think that ba- you think that in effect, um,
1: the, the, the le- the sort of message of the movie is there's not a lot of, there's not a lot more to explore on that. Or, or do you think that cute? Q- now, do you think Kubrick picks sides though?
0: I don't know. That's a tough call. Like, I think he's trying to possibly say at the very end that, you know, our evil nature is kind of embedded within us and it's inevitable Mm. that you sort of have to accept that there's going to be these types of people in our existence and you can't interfere with that. You can't like necessarily condition the evil out of them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as hard as we try, maybe as hard as like, you know, governments try to or as our, our prison system, our legal system or number types of systems and institutions try to condition you know, you can't turn off the the animal, the animal that exists in, in all of us, which Mm -hmm. I, I guess I agree with as a theme, but at the same, like, you know, but at the same time, it just doesn't, I don't know, it just doesn't hit home for me in the way that a lot of his other work does. And, you know, but I do like the aesthetics and I certainly like the choice of wide angle lenses at times. It's, but you know, as I mentioned before we started recording, it's very in your face. Yeah. And that kind of is more of a turnoff for me personally, but at the same time I can see how it wouldn't be for someone, for someone else. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I mean, it's, uh, it goes in, it goes in a way where a
1: lot of uh, uh, other aggressive films can go in like, like the, that, uh, like the rape sequence, for example, is yeah, is a so very, odd. very, dis- is very, very disturbing. And the, um, and the and the ludovico treatment for it is um uh, uh like just this very peculiar kind of uh, uh kind of horror to it um and it's just a, and it comes and comes across as a film where you think that everything's possible everything's possible but not at all in the in a kind of positive or yeah. or um uh, or um uh, or even ha- decent way you think thi- uh, you think while watching it like anything can go horrifically wrong and bad at any moment and this the shade of like unpleasant unpleasantness uh can uh uh could persist a very i mean it's a definitely a very specific a very specific atmosphere well i mean one that i'm one where i kind of respond a little better to it is i think it's kind of like a more i think it's kind of like a more truthful atmosphere and how in your face it is in how comfort in how confrontational mm-hmm. it is because like just like I mean, we live in a we live in a time period now where like where we're inundated with uh, information and and details are flying all around us. Um, uh, uh, and and Kubrick I think gets a little bit at the um, a little bit at the kind of dis at the kind of um, uh, feeling sense of onrushing, like of on rushing things uh, too much. Too soon, too fast. Yeah. Um. And 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 he gets that. And I think he can get. He evokes that feeling so well. Through how claustrophobic he views things, how how he how he moves things, it kind of reminds me of like how like I think one of the great contrasts in the lens kind of perspective is look at the two sex quote unquote sex scenes. Yeah, in. there's a there's a stark contrast between the two of them. Right, like the blue in, in the the blue Danube uh, sequence where the where the ship is slowly approaching is presented as this glorious uh, majestic uh, majestic waltz. Uh, between two inanimate objects, but meanwhile, the the sex scene in um, uh, Clockwork Orange is done to the William Tell Overture, <laughs> done at I, some things like some thirty-two times speed, and it takes the and it takes a, a natural act and renders it as this horrible kind of <laughs> like you are like a, 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 a multi-limbed
0: jittery apparition yeah. on <laughs> in, also in that without feeling also it just i mean maybe it's the feeling is playful and joyful for him uh but we don't get to see that really because of the music the music is muting that right and it's making
1: right and it's making right and it's making that strange and strange and weird Mm -hmm. and like our flow of information much much too quick
0: yeah no that makes sense i can i can i can see that argument and i i mean like the the wide angle sort of point of view shots and like some of the, some of the more dizzying camera work and some of the fight sequences. And even when he's, you know, attacking that woman with the, with the dildo statue. Yes. Like that whole thing. It's just, it's, it's more jarring to me than pleasurable to watch. Mm -hmm. And obviously I'm very, you know, I, I guess I just find like the, 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 the contrast with singing in the rain and, and a rape and, you know, an act of physical violence taking place to again be very heavy-handed in its approach and just like I'm going to choose a song that's very beautiful and distinctive and you know memorable from a very beautiful movie right <laughs> and you know placing in a completely subversive context here and make it very dark and you know I think that's that's admirable to some degree and especially for its time you know I mean clearly yeah. this caused a lot of controversy and might have even been not not released the way it should have been i think like mm-hmm. censored um yeah
1: i think i believe it was like banned in england because yeah. of uh, because of the rape sequence among um was like one of the chief reasons yeah
0: right and the actor that plays um the husband of the wife um especially when alex you know in sign of after being beaten up by his cronies who are now policemen i kind of like that <laughs> I, I like that touch especially yes. in this day and age i like that touch yes yes um <laughs> I just, his acting in that is just way crazy for me. Like, I don't know. It's a tonally he, he, it's like he's in, I don't know, acting like he's in a crazy Mel Brooks comedy all of a sudden or something. Like he's just really over the top and crazy. Um, in a way that I just don't find complimentary, I guess, to the rest of the film. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. There's a kind of level, there's a kind of level in, I found in, in clockwork orange, that is a little not apparent in like even in earlier Kubrick films, like um, earlier films, like had people who were had people who were acting uh, crazy, but with a possible exception of um, Dr. Strangelove in Dr. Strangelove sure. for the most part, their craziness is like is, is relatable or understandable on a little kind little of grounded. a human concept. Yeah. yeah. And, and right. And right. And the beaten and the beaten husband and the, the beaten husband in a wheelchair, there's a level of what the hell that you have as that, that I definitely have as well as in uh, watching the film and just just okay what it, why present him as acting enjoying that enjoying
0: your food like he's just <laughs> really playing it at 11.
1: Yes, yes. The whole yes. time. Right, right. That is the right. That's that's a right. That's a case of going way so over the top. Where like you just you get a you get a, a non-rewarding level of ambiguity as it's what could that possibly mean yeah. for that kind of to be for someone to behave in that to behave in that way, and I feel that with some of the other characters like the like the counselor that like the and how the very plummy way he goes and deals with Alec how yeah, he has sure. his suffocating like su- syrupy uh, delivery, um, and. And, and yeah, so yeah, that's something where I find, where I find a little, um, uh, caught off balance myself. I mean, in, in my would be, my would be defense upon it is I kind of think it is, it is, the film is almost attempting to be a kind of a fable because like, it seems to me that like the film's kind of divided in, divided in half and Mm -hmm. you get like, and you get like a case where like the first part is about Alex, and you're looking at things from Alex's perspective—the things that ha- the things that he's doing—you have to feel like this visceral first thi- uh, first level involvement in.
0: Yeah, we've, the first thing we see is his eye level <laughs> <laughs> right right
1: so, right which is a <laughs> which right which sense. is it's a great con- right it's a great contrast to the ending of 2000 the two ending of 2001 has a star child yeah um and Looking. then it's an ending and then the beginning of Clark orange has a <laughs> very very unpleasant uh earth teenager <laughs> yeah 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 uh to to start and it seems that once alex gets i mean for me though i'll uh, like one of the things that took my breath away, actually, when I saw was oh, sorry, *Clarkwork Orange*—is when you see Alex do all these horrible things and do all these all these acts, and then when he gets to prison, he's turns out he's like only fifteen or sixteen years old. I know that's shocking. Yeah, and I kind of think that the the movie does this really interesting pivot at this point, because because up until then things were presented in a garish kind of, in a garish kind of manner. Like, huh, heck, even when he's racing with his drugs, like the rear projection is done at such a obviously oh, fake level right. that it's almost that, like a cartoon. <laughs> right. Right. And like that, that, that it's not right. That, that maybe even like you're meant to like, You're meant to keep a distance, or at very least not treat it as like a a real, real, on a realistic level. Something in your own head is saying, okay, this is, this is just a a deranged, this is just a deranged kind of story. But maybe it's kind of like, uh, the reason I think maybe it might be a deranged bedtime story is that at the halfway point, when Alex says he's like uh, 15, I think the perspective subtly changes, at least for the jail prison sequence, because that's shown. Realistically, their yeah. like the their yeah, yeah. prison activities are shown like there. It's given a level of verisimilitude, which I think might work in a similar way to how the the bomber in uh, Doctor Strangelove gives a grounding. Mm-hmm. It, it's a but unlike in Strangelove, that grounding was not there before. I don't think you know. Yeah, Clarkrick or Orange.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, the, 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 there's a, a a sense of realism in Doctor Strangelove where you're seeing pretty much. Them at work and doing their task and doing it well step by step by step, to where the comedy is almost removed from that entirely. And then that happens here in Clockwork Orange, where the energy is sort of removed all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And that could make complete sense that we're we're shifting perspectives and now we're supposed to be not necessarily like the judges or the government, but you know now it's uh, it feels like a different movie. Yes. And it still doesn't quite connect. Um, as a whole for me I think you know but maybe I'm just maybe I'm just mad at its aggression in some ways and maybe it's like I love Beethoven so much I don't do that to Beethoven right right like I I get as mad as Alex (laughs) does when he's being conditioned right right and that's and that's such a I mean I think like the
1: the I think there's such an interesting thing about how the fact that is echoed that because right because like when Mm -hmm. he's when Alex is doing "Singing in the Rain" as he commences on the, on on the rape sequence, I mean the right that comes across. I mean to, to you uh, as as that is a it's a off putting. It's an off putting, obvious, facile thing. Yeah. But to get but when it's interesting to me that like the same kind of thing happens with. Uh, with Ludwig van during the, during that treatment. Right. And while, while like the idea that like, you know, the control, the, while the idea of the control is, um, why the idea of the control is, is a, maybe a simple message. The fact that like that both in both Alex's case personally and society's case generally, there's an acknowledgement of the, of, of the value of an artistic piece held by a really horrible hmm. individual. And then, yeah, so when he's complaining he's complaining for this guy who's done all these horrible things, and you certainly do not have reason to sympathize with him, but his plea to not have this piece corrupted by being part of is is something that i I actually do manage to feel. I do manage to feel for him in that moment,
0: yeah, and that's, that's I do too. I know I definitely do feel empathy for the idea of somebody, if somebody were to take music that I love and turn it against me, and suddenly I have. You know, like a Pavlovian response to it And just completely Like, I can't take it, it'll give me headaches Or, you know, it's it's painful to listen to That would obviously destroy me mm-hmm. I mean, I might even be suicidal too Yeah But, you know, then we sort of come to the end Where, you know, we, we pretty much have uh, a futuristic version of the the Rorschach test, and <laughs> you know, it, again, it's it's a little obvious, and but we also get to it's a way f- to communicate to the audience um, his transformation, his his change has taken place, and he's sort of reverted back to his old self, but at the same time, he sort of made a compromise with the institutions that sort of made him the way he is. So it's kind of an, I mean, it's an interesting statement. It's it's kind of an odd note to end on. Yes. Where you're not 100% sure how to feel in Mm -hmm. the end, which Mm -hmm. I don't mind. I just kind of like, I guess I kind of wish I felt a lot more, I don't know, what's the word? But something just, something feels off. But at the same time, I I still commend the movie for for being subversive and being... Mm -hmm challenging and aggressive, even if I just don't connect with it.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, ultimately like you're in the, in the ending, I mean, you're, do you feel, end up feeling like, like, um, that it's just a, a kind of sour message on humanity delivered in a, in a straight, in a, in an obvious manner. Or did you think it was like that, that Kubrick himself was giving multiple kind of ways to, to look at that image?
0: You know, I think it's, it's a, it's a it's a little bit of a sour message but mm-hmm. you know i i understand why that message would exist because it happens it's like you turn on the news and you see acts of violence committed left and right and my initial response every time i turn on the news is like how can we get that inhumane towards one another how can we enact yeah. that level of violence on another person mm-hmm. and so it makes sense that because I think the book ends very differently. I think that's kind of what a lot of people have, um, not necessarily critiqued, but have commented on the differences between the way this movie ends and the way the book ends. The way the book ends, I think he does sort of live a normal life, quote unquote, with a husband, with a wife and kids, and, mm-hmm. and living in a sunny suburban home and stuff. But this movie sort of chooses to say, well, violence and violent behavior and evil exists. And that's part of what makes us human. Our animal instincts are always going to be there. Our aggression is always going to be there. We sort of have the choice, hopefully, to externalize our rage. And whether, I mean, I guess it's sort of up to the viewer whether Alex winds up becoming a hardened criminal throughout the rest of his life. And I think that's possible. I think he, Kubrick sort of leaves that door open.
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, yeah. He, I mean, I found the, I mean, I find the ending just like, just kind of like tremendously cynical. Um, sure. Uh, and, and the, like the way in, if you look at it in comparison to the ending sequence of 2001, like they both feature a person who's like prone on a bed, uh, reaching out towards like an authority figure. Whereas, but whereas, <laughs> but whereas, whereas one where Bowman's like his motives are, are unknown or there's multiple possibilities, for me, I was I, one of the things I found most negative about it is just the the smug way that when Alex gets that food, hand given, ha, delivered by hand. The like, way he
0: opens his mouth. Yes. The
1: <laughs> way just. Yep. Absolutely. Just making an offering like he's just a baby, like just he's the baby bird for it. Yeah. I mean, the implication that I, the implication that I get out of it is, at that moment is that like, uh, is that yeah he'll be a. I mean he won't be a criminal but he won't be a good person either because he's simply a person who takes his bad behavior and now is acclimated to the system that has its own motives to go and uh, uh, reward those particular bad behavior in certain ways so he's like yeah. yeah he's learned to stop uh stop raging uh stop raging against the machine and and uh join in
0: <laughs> yeah it's like the ending of Fargo season two ends with like somebody who was essentially, you know, a criminal mob boss winds up joining corporate America, you know? And that's, Uh that seems to like on one hand, that's, that's again, sort of obvious in in its commentary, but it makes sense. A lot of criminals rise the corporate ladder and you know guys like uh, Jordan Belfort and Walt Wolf at Wall Street, Wolf of Wall Street exist. yeah so it, it makes sense that like maybe there's a maybe there is a middle ground with Alex maybe you're right. Maybe he's like not going to become you know a hardened criminal and commit murderous acts left and right once he gets out. but he's just sort of choosing to embrace um, a more aggressive behavior that exists within him, whether or not that leads to uh, violent acts or not, but it's just, It's an interesting note to end on. I'm still like I still wrestle with the movie, which isn't a bad thing. It's just not one that I hold as in high regard when it comes to Kubrick. Mm -hmm. But I also respect it too. Yeah,
1: I mean, I and I think I think a lot of it. If it was just if it was just that first half, it was just about Alex's. If it was just Alex being um, uh, uh, Alex being being uh, unfettered. I think it would have been a much more diminished work for it, and um, it would have, and the, if the portrayal of society had been just as zany as Alex's portrayal of, and the portrayal of say the cat, la- the cat lady, then, then I think it, it wouldn't have resonated as much, at least for me. But by virtue of the pivot and the kind of per, uh, the kind of per step back that Kubrick seems to do on while during the sequences in prison. I think there is some uh, extra, some more value that you can be that can be picked up from the, um, the, the change in perspective, the look I, at, the look at. These I
0: would things. get behind that way more if the, the the actor that plays the husband wasn't such a caricature when yes. Alex returns. Yeah, that's yeah. probably like the ol- like that's the only strike against the second half where it seems to change perspectives and tone, where it suddenly it's <laughs> like, oh. He- yeah, he is kind of acting like a crazy cat man <laughs> to yeah. some degree.
1: Yeah, that, that, yeah, that, yeah, that's
0: right. I mean, the only framework where he, the only framework where it works for
1: me, and I'm, I'm with you. I, he's, I'm with you. He, um, he looks uh, honestly. He looks, um, I mean, maybe if the point was made that he was crazier, that he's more deranged in a clinical sense than Alex is. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, Kubrick hit that hammer considerably too hard for me. I think the one framework that could work is that it, it has a, it does have this fabulistic quality because. The other thing that I don't care for it as much is that, does he have to meet every single person <laughs> on his way up, <laughs> as, he does yeah, to, yeah. as he does on the way down? Like, I, having the having his fellow Drewsby policeman, very nice touch. Mm-hmm. Having as a family, and he has a substitute brother. So great, uh, great. Uh, great uh, that's that's a great touch as well. But he meets the
0: derelict again at the from and the very beginning. And
1: then the derelict's buddies get to beat him up. Yeah. Okay, that's um, uh, that's that's very. Oh, uh, that's taking the story and that element to a Mother Goose level. And ultimately, I don't. And and while that could work for another kind of film, I don't think it works for Alex as a character to go because because you he is more. self-contradictory on multiple ways to be I think reduced or made to fit in this kind of fable-like structure so I think that was a little a little less successful on it right but it gets me on the the final 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 image actually does get me to at least a promise to go to try and check it out more because it's i find that really really tremendously potent it has the ending image where alex is sitting in this hole in the ground what looks like to be a coffin as he's yeah. as he's um uh, as a, uh, a a topless woman is uh is exultingly like ro- exultingly romancing him but then a crowd of people on the side are cheering
0: on, you know. Almost thinks of how Freddie Quell's resolution is at the end of the Master. Oh, a little that's bit.
1: good. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, a
0: little bit. Right, right. Is right.
1: Like it, they both explore the idea: is he cured already? Right? Yeah, yeah. is he have? Does he have a, Does he? Does he have this system that? Does he have this system that works for him? And what does it mean that? The, and what does it mean to have the um, uh, society appearing to go and approve mm-hmm. this particular? Uh, version of the person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, it does give me like I think about that and I think, wow, well, the movie may have some more, some more riches in store for future resumes for me. Oh yeah, sure. I
0: definitely will watch it again. Yeah, as a visceral experience, <laughs> it is, is of it is one of a kind as well. Yeah. You know what? I we didn't really touch upon this last time, but um, we're skipping over Barry Lyndon this time. We might, we, we definitely will um consider it for our sequel episode which is probably inevitable at this point um given that we have so much to cover still and probably other theories to touch on from other people and possibly a different guest too so um barry Lyndon, we're skipping and we touched upon the shining pretty early on in the episode as our first uh, sort of experience with kubrick and we're both fans overall um Full metal jacket. We're going to skip over as well. And but do you have any like? Do you, do you have a quick sentence or two um, about yeah, full metal jacket? Uh, one,
1: that- yeah. Well, one thing that comes to mind, like when, when we were when during our discussion, when when you when uh, you consider like full metal jacket, that it kind of really. Interesting to me how it um, has a similar kind of structure in the, in, the change of per, in the change of perspective that it does. Yeah, like. Get like,
0: split into two parts.
1: Right. Literally. Yeah, and <laughs> right. Right. And, and, um, and, uh, and, and they kind of seem to mirror, kind of in a way, uh, Alex's, Alex's journey through um, Clockwork Orange. In the first case, you have um, you're in a very limited world. Um, and, and, and people are shaped there a certain way. And the second half shows the wider world and the way that the things that they've learned yeah, <laughs> whether, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, fit or don't fit in that expanded world and how, how that relates and changes them and sends them in a third direction. And so I think that's like a level of duality which is not this is something that may have emerged from Kubrick's later work when he uh, landed on Earth
0: at the end of, after the end of making 2001. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's definitely a movie that um, I don't unabashedly love as much as his last film, but it's one that um, still sticks with me quite a bit. It's you know I think seeing, especially having such a strong memory of the first half of Full Metal Jacket, and seeing it kind of at an impressionable age, and at a time when my my dad was you know he was a huge war movie buff, and you know his favorite movie was Apocalypse Now, and when we talked about uh, full metal jacket, he told me that the that is exactly what being at boot camp was like. Oh <laughs> you know being being in the Navy, you know, even though it was a different branch of service, it was exactly like that for him. So seeing that first hour was like a documentary to him and hearing that actually scared me. <laughs> like I was like, that's right. what it's like. Oh right, right. Um I um Arlie Emery, um, oh, I man. believe I believe he actually He was, was just gonna be the consultant on right and they wind up they wound up hiring him
1: yeah uh very i mean uh, (laughs) right what case of like a case of kubrick's like uh um like dedication towards a dedication towards accuracy giving out some really really uh great results i mean pretty much is there almost anything that guy says that is not memorable from that movie i know Maybe, maybe one of Kubrick's most of quotable was films. A
0: lot of that was improvised from from Lee Ermey. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he kind of knew he knew gold where he saw it in, in that case, for sure. Yeah. So, Eyes Wide Shut. I might be taking crazy pills here, but this is probably my favorite. Um, you know, it's probably not the best Kubrick film, but it's the one I get the most out enjoyment out of. Um, hmm. Especially revisiting. The world Kubrick creates here is very colorful. It's like a colorful fever dream that wouldn't be out of place in something like Scorsese's After Hours in which Mm. we kind of get to see like a... I mean, I don't think Griffin Dunn's character was the smug, rich doctor in any way, but here we get to see a smug, rich doctor encounter a lot of crazy situations, uh, a lot of surrealism um, surrounding sexual repression. And every time we think he's about to experience release, a phone call occurs or some outside force interrupts him. Which strangely enough, I, I thought about it too. It happens a lot in my dreams. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, not to
0: get too personal. But it just it's weird how that like you think something's gonna happen and then something completely crazy comes out of nowhere to interrupts you. So there there are many theories out there about this movie. Um, and a lot seemed to revolve around the possibility that what Tom Cruise experiences could all take place in his subconscious, which, you know, makes sense, but I don't see any evidence within the film to support that because we don't actually see Tom Cruise go to sleep after his argument. Oh, right,
1: right. Yes, You know,
0: because the idea is like pretty much everything from, you know, uh, when the woman who just lost her, um her father tries to seduce Tom Cruise. Everything from that point on is, is a dream, which I don't know. It's like, it feels like a dream. And it's a lot of the things that he goes through. Don't seem like they take place in reality. They seem like a hyper reality or something. Hmm. Um, But Hmm. you know, maybe it's intentional of Kubrick to leave out a scene where, okay, Tom Cruise is going to go to sleep. And then clearly he's in a dream state. Maybe he took that out intentionally to fuck with us and be mm-hmm. playful it's possible oh that's that's a really interesting <laughs> that's a really interesting point I mean because you go it's
1: it's one if, if true if if true that he removed the scene of going to sleep it would be yet an, another case of how reducing something can enhance can enhance something mm-hmm. um and it, and it calls to mind to me two, two, notable, uh, two uh two other movies that use that to an interesting way is um uh, is a film called is a very criminally under under recognized film called Dark City, where like you you that was have Ebert's
0: a, favorite film of that year, <laughs> right? And it's it is
1: it's just a remarkable film, but um there is a point there's a point halfway halfway through where someone says hey you ever noticed this and it is like. In a moment that was uh, from a film that was made before the Matrix, it's very much of an eye-opening. Hey, wait a minute! Are we in a dream or not? Kind of moment, and it also harkens back to me for an um, uh, interesting d- detail of um, uh, Hitchcock's Rear Window, where hmm. the the one of the few th- times you get a case of like an overlook. Where you where it's where the look of the uh, buildings across the street from Jimmy uh, Stewart's apartments are not cut but they're panned. It has an establishing shot which moves through all the different apartments, which I love. To, yes, and it then settles in on Jimmy Stewart who is asleep, and he also happens to be asleep at um uh, at the very end uh, of the uh, film as well. And uh, and in fact, it's it's interesting you bring up the idea of the subconscious because. You know, if you really wanted to say that like Jimmy Stewart's character in in uh, rear window has all these ambiguous feelings about Mary and Grace Kelly, which of course shows he's crazier than anybody in yeah. Orange, <laughs> <Warren. laughs> but but may and that every every one of these windows is a compartment in his head to show the different parts of uh, of why of his contradictory feelings, that's another valid interpretation and and the subconscious and the subconscious level. Is I think is really nicely brought about not in any, in Eyes Wide Shut not in any particular way but I think in just the way it's filmed like uh, Kubrick always has this has especially during his late period had this really great gliding camera motion oh, and God, I, yes. I find it's really nicely emphasized and highlighted in in Eyes Wide Shut
0: yeah going and- down hallways and even. The camera will just be follow or, you know, just be ahead of Tom Cruise and he's the Tom Cruise is walking towards the camera a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And it, right. It, has, it is given this. Right. It's right. Always coming towards the camera.
1: That's really. Yeah. I mean, that, that's really interesting, especially since he I don't think there's a shot where he are too many shots where he approaches a camera and then up gets closer to the lens. No. Uh, he seems much like in the way that you say he's always has a distraction to keep him from uh, to keep uh, like uh, him from uh, getting to a certain point. In the same, yeah. way he's 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 constantly in motion, but not quite not getting to a not getting to a destination. And to me, it, it actually harkens back a little bit to um, the core uh, the trench shot in Paths of Glory, yeah. uh, something where it combines the sense of motion and movement. But then it stays steady at a distance away from Kirk Douglas's character and yet the 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 trench walls around him claustrophobic,
0: claustrophobic yes yeah, yeah.
1: maybe the canyons
0: of Kubrick's New York have a have a similar kind of effect. Yeah, it feels it feels like a whole other world even though it's grounded and you know you got Christmas of all things to sort of serve as the backdrop which you know adds to the color the, the color scheme, the, the the blue hues are very, very uh, accentuated throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, all, pretty much all colors. And the lighting. Have you seen many bedrooms, like the one that right. they're in, that lit? Like, are all the bulbs they have, like, high wattage or something? <laughs> but, I mean, you know, one could argue, like, that's the way uh, you have to light the scene. to. But it just makes everything, um, I don't know, more surreal. In that regard. It's I, I think that, that I think that
1: quality of it actually extends to the to the film the actual quality of almost like the film element itself. Like for for a film made this late, it's so it has such a grain texture to it. Like it yeah. like like there seems to be like, like like almost like a shimmer that comes across from like the entire surface of of the um of the film, and it's and and the way it's lit with this like very, it's like the these soft yet ever prevalent like hues to it mm-hmm. give give this sort of give this sort of sense of this w- great sense of otherworldliness that makes you think it's a dream or a so that can get you to feel like it's a, a dream or a subconscious um, level of uh, that in a way that like. Um, uh, in the way that a few other a few other movies could and it's definitely even if everything hap everything actually happens but but then like right i think part of the movie's subject which is really interesting is that what do- what does happen you know what is like the tr- i mean what is the truthfulness of, of 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 like both like um both like the actions
0: and the feelings of the characters in it yeah fantasy versus reality action towards You know, just feeling some, feeling desire. Right. And, you know, another argument for it being a dream is the fact that he does take a a cab for the um, costume shop. Mm -hmm. And it's right across the street from the, uh, the bar he just came from. Uh-huh. which is something right. like a couple of uh, pla- a couple of people have brought up, which is really an odd choice. Like, why would he just take a cab to cross the street? <laughs> you know, and <laughs> Kubrick being as meticulous as he is and, you know, his sense of loca- – I mean, people sort of harp on a lot of the lo- locales in The Shining to where they actually outlined a map in Room 237, which is crazy. Right. Um, But, you know, throughout this entire movie, you have interactions like, you know, the one at the costume shop, the one with Alan Cumming, which I adore. Um, Oh, yeah. You know, and I think to me, it's it's ultimately less about a cult like Illuminati having orgies like that whole sequence is disturbing and strange. And, you know, it it sort of takes the eroticism out of sex. It takes the sexy out of sex and again, dehumanizes sex to where it's all anonymous And full of just thrusting without moans. And, you know, like the things you're used to when you experience a sex scene is taken out in this play. And there's some crazy weird choices of music, both with the monk chants and the piano score, which my parents absolutely loathe. I'll never forget when they came back from this movie in the theater and they like the piano score was the worst thing we ever heard. <laughs> um, so, y- you know, like there's just, I think that's right. I, the weirdness of this movie keeps bringing me back to it. I think like it's
1: um, it, like the, you're coming on the score is real. I mean, I find just uh, really interesting, especially as it compares to like how you're describing how you're, you know, you bring up how like Tom Cruise is constantly frustrated. Yeah. Um, uh, and it kind of like reminds me of this, um, uh, like this short story, um, by, um, uh, Kurt Vonnegut called Harrison Bergeron. Like, um, Hmm. and it's because the basic premise of the story is that in this future society, everybody is equal. And the way you make people equal in turns out, in this world is to limit them. So people who can uh, gracefully dance, have weights attached to their legs, <laughs> uh, uh, pe- uh, people who are very people who are very strong, have to like have to like get this medication that weaken them. And if people are, are um uh, thinking faster than others uh, they are they have a helmet which periodically puts out a large loud ringing noise at random intervals <laughs> so Whoa. so the main character the main character is trying to think through a situation but getting continually hamstrung through loud ringing and in in, in this way, i guess kind of you can almost think the tone the that that weird atonal uh score those, that those 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 ding, piano ding, points ding, 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 ding. it is it is as disharmonious as the as the three chords from 2001 feel natural and correct yeah. and uh and but they I think they also have like kind of a purpose in that it's showing this is the world where com Cruise, where Cruz's character is uh is totally frustrated. But now, how much is he, I mean, how much frustration, I mean, where's this frustration, like, you know, coming from? It kind of leads me on the idea on the end scene. What do you think on the end scene that Nicole Kidman says those things to him in, at a
0: store, on Christmas, shopping for their... With the daughter walking around. <laughs> right. That's the yes. thing that I'm still... Like, I focused on that more this time, whereas I'm always, you know, in the past, focused on their interaction and their dialogue. This time, I actually thought, maybe as I'm getting older, I don't know why, um, where I'm becoming more of a protective figure, but like, I just thought, you're letting, you're talking for like, I don't know, f- five to 10 minutes here, and you're letting your daughter just wander around aimlessly without checking in or even just glancing over. You guys are making eye contact the whole time and sort of having epiphanies together about, you know, whether we fantasize about these things or whether they're dreams or what if they really happen, at least we shared these adventures together. And I'm, my first initial thought was like, Nicole McKidman did not go on any adventure. It was Tom Cruise who went on this crazy adventure. Hmm. You know, so I mean, how did she did they have a shared experience of some kind of shared dream? Or is she just sort of relaying, um, you know, back to her fantasy with the naval officer and what he experienced? Um but it's, it's just, it is a little bizarre to end on that note, to have her outright say, we just need to fuck, <laughs> and that's it. Um, you know, it's, it, I think it's just a simple commentary on, you know, the fact that some marriages lose intimacy. They put it on the back burner, and that manifests itself in very ugly ways to where you have all this desire repressed and look at how it can, you know, manifest itself, whether if it's in your sleep while you're dreaming or through jealousy. And when you're relaying a fantasy that you once had, or maybe, you know, you're out on the town and you, you see somebody that you wish you could have, but you can't because you're married. So out, you, you, you externalize these frustrations. So they sort of come to terms like, maybe if we just fuck more, we'll feel closer, you know? And I know that's sort of simplistic and pro- that's probably not the answer to maintaining a successful marriage but it's part of it
1: now i mean what do you i mean did you i mean do you think that that that's like that that at least as far as the movie's concerned that kind of does see feel like an answer or that the characters are diluted in one in in any way like i kind of think that in for those characters at those points I think that is a. I think that is an answer for for me. I don't think Kubrick's being sarcastic or ironic in that. For but for, that's my impression.
0: Yeah, I think that is part of their answer. They seem really sort of uh, detached at the beginning, going through the motions. Where's my wallet? And you know, even at the party, they're just kind of like they separate at one point. Mm-hmm. You know, and they sort of flirt with different people at the beginning of the movie and get drunk and you know, she decides they decide to get stoned and they're sort of escaping, um, their problems. A lot of the time they're sort of escaping their, uh, probably how they really feel, but maybe at the end, if they just reconnect in some physical primal way, they'll get back to how they once felt. Possibly, possibly, there's no way to know, (laughs) but it's, You know, it's, it's, it's more, again, I like the fact that this is the final note Stanley Kubrick ends on the (laughs) F word. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, uh, it's funny. And, you know, at the same time, I, I just think it's, it's fitting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's, um, uh. Right, the the fact that it that's gonna be the last
1: word on the movie, and that 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 Nicole Kidman dressed up in a uh, dressed up in a, in a lovely outfit at the a store for children surrounded by teddy bears, surrounded by <laughs> surrounded by teddy bears. That's like, I mean, it's a real. I mean, I think I feel the same way in that like, but what makes it what makes the but it makes it weird because every if you look at that's a case where. That's the right word to say. If you you can see why it's the right word to say, but everything else in the context is saying no. Don't say that word there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. So, <laughs> I mean, so your I daughter's think,
0: walking around quiet.
1: Right. <laughs> what on? Yeah, yeah. Right and, behind you. Yes, and so I mean, and so I mean, that's a really. I mean, I think that's. I find that really cool. I find it. it and. It does lead like this is a kind of a film which is very much about like what do you say and what do you admit maybe you know, like uh, to your to yourself like yeah. um what is the um like is is the kind of like jealousy you know that Tom Tom Cruise feels when he's like flashing back to these images that um uh, that do or don't exist about like uh, Nicole. Kidman having sex with that uh, naval officer. officer. It's
0: weird that I don't. I can't think of other examples where Kubrick does that, where we get to see a visual portrayal of what a character is actually thinking. And he thinks of it a lot at inappropriate times. Like it could be okay. I'm driving in a cab. I'm on autopilot. Of course, I'm going to be thinking about it. But he's thinking about it while he's at work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and at times where it's like, why are you thinking about that? That one. You know, and plus it was a fantasy. It was something that did not actually take place. It's not like she actually cheated on you. I could see be really hung up on it. But at the same time, maybe it's just the thought. Mm -hmm. Just the lone thought of that happening is enough to drive you mad. But I also think Kubrick is commenting, you know, on a lot of different things, whether if it's uh, Tom Cruise's possibly gay because a lot of people were still to this day, I think, think that. Mm-hmm. And there's two instances, one's playful with Alan Cumming, and the other is really intense and aggressive, with those, you know, uh jocks accosting him in the middle of the street, calling right. him a faggot, which is really out of place. Like it's it, it comes out of nowhere, it feels awkward and strange. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of go, what was Kubrick's intent there? Other than let's play with audience expectations and how people perceive Tom Cruise as a person. Yeah. Um, and then again, like maybe Kubrick is also commenting a little bit on Lolita with Lily Sobieski's, uh, <laughs> the daughter figure in the, you know, the rainbow costume shop, right. like her's just showing up in her underwear, you know, slowly coming on to Tom Cruise and whispering into his ear at one point. Right. That's another sort of sly, commentary on like, Ooh, what's this? This is creepy and weird. Or, you know, is it okay? I don't know. But, um, it's just, and it's just weird how that's also flips at one point with the father hating the fact that this is happening. Oh, and the next day is like, Oh, if you want to have sex with my daughter, that's cool. Yeah, it's yeah. It's just weird. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> yes, yes.
1: There is um right, there's a level of like where I think there's a level where you're meant to like where you're meant to go, "Wait a minute, this is not this is not right." And um and yeah. the level where like the level where Kubrick put, puts that wedge for your perception is I mean, it's interesting to me anyway how like that expands or or not like like um it seems to me that like what we were talking about it for Clark Orange like he takes the wedge between how you're interpreted and just hammers it through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the Jackman to the extent that like you go, "Oh, well, wait, what is this? What the heck kind of thing am I watching?" Um in I he's he's I think he's considerably more subtle in in what he's doing in um uh, in like Eyes wide shut, like those first actions like at the party they they come on to Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman a little strong but at the same time you can kind of see people try in that situation kind of trying to make a move but and then through Tom Cruise's journey they get to like different levels of hey is this even appropriate like yeah. what gets me is when they're when the well, the a woman has her dead father in the next room and is immediately coming on to him at this moment and just like that I look at that and I just and I just think that like okay he's he uh this is a perspective this is a perspective that uh is in no way is in no way is like um r- real it's no in no way is real when I, to, that's to me and to me but the difference is, is like whether is this a surreal world that Kubrick is creating or whether this is like just the vast misinterpretation of of Tom hmm. Cruise's character. As for Tom Cruise's like um, orientation, by the way, I think you can logically deduce it since um since you know t- He's clearly had a Tom lot Cru- of divorces. Well, well, <laughs> no, clearly, not. For me, it's clearly because like, well, I know that Tom Cruise is male, and I know that Tom Cruise loves Tom Cruise, so I I could decide to connect the dots that way. <laughs> it's a distinct possibility, um, and and I mean it leads on and and
0: and like a lot of it also is about like his own narcissism like his uh yeah that's why i think i like this movie too it's sort of commenting on tom cruise's narcissism and how that gets fucked with Mm -hmm. like he he comes in being confident and then crazy things happen like the only inkling of a sexy moment involves tom cruise going back to the prostitute's uh, apartment yeah and you know uh, the roommate is just like so open to having this stranger come into the apartment mm-hmm. and being like hey I'll let you feel me up and that moment is actually you know kind of surprising in like oh it's you know it's 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 kind of lustful and playful and it might seem like Tom Cruise is getting somewhere but then of course the roommate has to undercut it and yeah. say guess what um that that girl you met last night that prostitute she has AIDS you know, it's like <laughs> yeah. you, you just think like, wow, he's he's really getting, um, you know, a, a lot of bad uh, experiences throughout this movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, I think I think was it like the it's just the
1: way that he's rea- I, I think a lot of the movie to me looks how, how he's it's a kind of a sense of descent and hmm. a, a descent and reascension for him because it's he keeps hitting these obstacles, but he keeps plowing through. That's true. And, and for me, I know I kind of get, I have this, I have the feeling that like almost up to the, up to the scene where they, up to the orgy sequence, his interactions get weirder and weirder and situations get stranger and stranger. Uh, And then of course, then after the orgy sequence, Like kind of like Clockwork Orange, it gets to there's a little of a fable-like quality where the same people he encounters on the way to the orgy are the same ones that he does on his trip back to his apartment and his wife, like like he's like like as you point out, like the Mm -hmm. costume shop owner, his how his demeanor how his demeanor is different. Yeah, everybody's a little different. Yeah, and and like to me that. I think the linchpin of why of what I think the movie's trying to say and why I am a, why I'm a real big fan of it is done with by that amazing sequence where Sidney Pollack says, hey, you just learn to accept, don't go ask any questions. You have a good position. You go and uh, and, you know, to, you need to keep your position by just saying it's just a dream. It was just a fantasy. And um, uh, just go on with your life. Like you, like you said, Cruz is so confident in the beginning with his, with that not not of himself, but that his authority. Yeah, he has. Like, Look at I, me, I'm a doctor. Yeah. Look at my badge. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I love that. Like uh, I think, like um, uh, we may have even talked about it before. How like he's. He's waving it like a cop in a noir film. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> would, would wave wave it around. Look, I have authority. I have power. You should go and uh, do these things for me because
0: I have this. I have this status. Yeah. And he's constantly learning. He's not. He doesn't have all the power. That's that he right. thinks He has. That's that's right. And and it's where he breaks down crying, mm-hmm. you know, in front of his own wife. And exactly. The question too leads to and, that mask. Right. Where does that come from? Did she find I think that's in one of those ambiguous touches from Cooper. Again. Yes. And I think that also, I mean, that 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 mask
1: at the bed has like, right? That's that's like a Kubrick level of ambiguity at its best because if you want to look at it one way, you want to say that like the um, uh, the um, people responsible for that orgy had left it there as a final reminder, akin to like the horse's head, because they couldn't yeah. get a horse's head in time, I guess. That, sure. That, <laughs> that like um, uh, that that they can get to him even in his most private that he they can get them in his most private moment
0: that's what i initially thought yeah
1: yeah and then you put you but you can also look at it you can also look at it that um that nicole Kidman found it and this is her accusation for him that she's on to his behavior and yet a third way is that in a kind of way he leaves it himself like the mask you can take to mean that he finally that he the reason that he breaks down is that he's crying because he just acknowledges the level of pretense that he's been that he's been giving to uh, that he's given into his wife it could be it that works that,
0: on a m- metaphorical level yes oh there.
1: i think it's tremendously successful on a m- metaphorical level because especially because is the mask the real thing of his or is the mask what he actually uh, his actual thing he actually was at the orgy at least as far as the course of the story so that could be if he was to admit it to Nicole Kidman, that's the admission of truth. Right. Or it could be that like his he's been giving a pretense to her, and it's admission of how fake it is. That's and it plays with that level of what is authentic and like his feelings, right? You it, he his feelings of jealousy and his feelings of sexual frustration. You know, in one sense, they are incredibly valid. He's absolutely feeling them, mm-hmm. but at the same time, he. He is, can think of other things. He's a lot more than just a bundle of like um, uh, of, of sexual repression. But so th- they're really valid at that time. How
0: do you fit to give yeah. validity to How that? How do you find that balance? That's right. And it also drives me nuts. You're married to Nicole Kidman. You're a doctor. You have all this wealth how can you feel emasculated and inferior? You know, it's like, I can right. see people being turned off by like, Oh, it's just some rich jerk. And we got to, cause like a lot of people have trouble dealing with protagonists that are just narcissistic assholes and you mm-hmm. have to spend time with them and like, Oh, whoa was poor Tom Cruise? He can't yeah. get laid. Oh yeah. 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 You know, but I, uh, I, I generally feel bad for him. You know, it's uh, like, it's weird, you know, at the point where Sidney Pollack sort of, you know, that whole, that, that has a long sequence. Him and him, you know, like Sidney Pollack playing with balls. I mean, not literally, but you um, know, playing with pool balls. It's well? kind of. Uh, I don't know if you want to read into. People have read into every <laughs> single detail in this movie. It's kind of scary. The Illuminati stuff is ridiculous. If you find oh, some, what's the
1: Illuminati stuff? If
0: you find, if you find, if you go, I'll send you some links. Um, but there's just stuff on here about how. You know, even the seductors at the beginning of the movie are part of this cult that are trying to seduce Tom and Nicole into all those people that are at the orgy. Huh. And even to some extent, the daughter is supposed to be a sacrifice into the cult. Okay. And that's why at the end she sort of disappears because they're letting her go or something. It's just, it's a far-fetched theory that... I guess that you can find it. You can read into it that deeply if uh-huh. you want to. It just would make it a, whole, a way creepier movie for me if that was the case. If like this was all about... Kubrick's experience with the Illuminati or something like and right. He was killed because he made eyes wide shut. Like, there are people who are really dead <laughs> wow. serious about that really? shit. Really? Wow. Like, oh, he, you thought he had a heart attack. <laughs> no, he was actually killed by the Illuminati because he made eyes wide shut. <laughs> like, I, uh, th- It's just so crazy to me. I just look at this as a good sort of you know, fun, playful commentary on infidelity, jealousy, and sexual repression. well, it's it's so maybe it's more relatable in that regard. well, I, I think uh, <laughs> that's so I mean, that's so
1: that's so interesting that you that you brought that up because the the kind of like it's it, it to me it actually really ties in in the same way of like of both like of both the shining and actually the ending of the sopranos because the like if you think about what the creator of the sopranos said about it, like you, as an audience getter member, gets whacked. If you think about that, like, yeah, it turns black. You have no resolution. You don't know how anything's ever going to solve out. And you never, ever will. Well, if you really think of the implications on that, that's pretty horrible. And so yeah, I that kind of sucks. That's how I felt when I first saw it. Exactly. Saw that sucks. Right. And, and guess what? That to be in that environment doesn't inf- of course that sucks. It sucks so bad that you that's that's why if you have evidence to say oh my god it happened this way or yeah. it happened the other way you really really want are dedicated to building it so it's so that is the case for you um in this uh, in a, in the same way for like um for like the shining i i totally think that like it's because that people were thinking there's a lo- a real great theme that kubrick had and then the the fact that they would the fact that there might be apparent that there is no seam would come like no it has to be about something i have a couple of facts about the moon landing let's plug them in and have and, and have them fit it's a series of projections yes and like and in fact the projections even translate themselves to maybe the best ironic joke about um uh about like and the best secret ironic joke about eyes wide shut something which may have not even be a kubrick's intention but hmm. a lot of the negative feelings about a lot of the negative feelings about eyes wide shut came upon the first impressions and a lot of those were because and a lot of those negative reactions about like why should i want to see tom cruise get frustrated in having sex. Yeah. But what's the converse of that, right? Mm-hmm. It's because it was sold as a yep.
0: sexy, romantic thing involving Tom Cruise and, and, Nicole. and Nicole Kidman. Yeah, I know. Right? And it's, so it's, a, it's subverting your expectations right? 100%. You, Even with that mirror sequence and that Chris Isaac song, it's placed at a very awkward point in the movie to where I didn't quite understand its placement. Yeah. And to this day, I'm like, okay, what does that mean you know i mean she's looking in the mirror they don't it's not really erotic it's more of detached they are not there's clearly no resolution to it it sort of fades to black so i don't think they actually had sex it's like they they mm-hmm. start to make out naked but we don't see what becomes of that so i'm guessing by the end of the movie because she says we need to fuck they don't in that moment <laughs> so but it's like you know the chris isaac song isn't the best choice but at the same time <laughs> um I just find it fascinating. Like that was what the campaign started with was that scene. Right. Right. But if you notice though, I, I, and, and I say that I'm
1: not, I say that, but my impression, my impression after recalling it is that in that mirror sequence, they're looking at the mirror, but they're looking, but Nicole Kidman is looking at herself. Yes. She's not looking at what Tom Cruise is doing or anything else around, but herself. And it's, I think it's kind of a it's kind of a statement tied to what kind of the movie is. like what part, what validity do we go on with our the feelings going on inside our own heads? And it also gives a narcissistic quality, like like this the the kind of speech she. I mean, right after that, she gives that talk about like about her fantasy, which. I think she knows enough to Tom Cruise to know that, at, or Tom Cruise's character at the point to, for it to give a sting. But then, why why give it at that moment? Is it
0: because uh, they got stoned, or <laughs> what? yeah, she becomes you know fiercely honest with him yeah. in a way that's like, I want to hurt you right now, and I don't know if it's just because like she's. Jealous because of what happened at the party Mm -hmm. or the fact that he plays with, you know, naked women's breasts at work, you know, it's, it's probably a combination of a lot of right. Right. Good point of his occupation. Jealousy.
1: That's right. That's right. And like, and I mean, on your, on that Illuminati theory, you just mentioned though, like. Um, that scares me. <laughs> it's, it's it's something that okay, it's something that people to think about. And in terms of like the literal example of whether it happens in the movie, is there enough is there enough things that the movie says that like can point that for example, the two girls in the beginning are in on it? No, no. There's no. That's, that's they something say they want to take
0: they want to take you to the other side of the rainbow. Yes,
1: that's right. Which they might as well be skill salesmen for all the <laughs> symbolic interpretation against you. However. It does, however, Tom Cruise or uh, Tom Cruise's character and Tom Cruise, the person that we know in an iconic level, that is his world, is that everybody wants to have sex with him. That's one component, but the bigger component is that Everyone in that world that he encounters hat, wants to get something from him, and that he can never interact with another human being without that being a part of his head. That's a kind of uh, yeah. That's a. I mean, he has he has wealth and fame and an entire religion dedicated he to supporting him. Uses money a him. lot
0: throughout this movie as a you know like hey I got this for you exactly yes you know. he
1: has right and that is a benefit and it does help him and in fact I would even say the movie plays with the idea of how much his status gets into places that. You know what? Maybe waving a doctor's license <laughs> doesn't really give people the the uh, doesn't really make people want to tell uh, you know you their life story you know yeah but in in
0: this world of the movie it does and I also like the subversion of he's going to be completely honest with his wife now but we as an audience we just get to see kind of the aftermath of silence between the two of them because right after he cries yeah it cuts to the next morning. And it's just them sitting on the couch, yeah. silent. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like that choice, yes. you know, because you expect like, oh, we're gonna have some more histrionics and like intense interactions here, but no, let's let's go with silence. And then even the monologue at the very end is just out of place, mm-hmm. but kind of kind of beautiful. Yeah, you know, it's it, it plays on different levels. So I mean, again, it's one of those movies that you can see people uh, prescribing. Illuminati kind of uh, uh, you know uh, theories to it. Yeah, I mean it's a sensibility that maybe people see about Tom
1: Cruise that that they need to get a name. You need to get an you need to get an answer for it. And if the answer is like if the answer is Illuminati, like the idea that you want to assign like there uh, you want to go assign a name or a group to something that's internal or is or is maybe just a part of everyone. Then maybe that's just the way you, that's the way it happens, you know. So I so I don't know. I but I'm a fan of conspiracy theories, and so I kind of want to give them more more credit in at least exploring something. There's a reason that they think up the way they do.
0: Yeah. No. I, I we could probably do a whole pod, podcast on conspiracy theories. That'd be kind of fun sometime. I'd love to. but <laughs> I, uh, I know. I would. I think the. I think like cults it's weird because i love movies about cults but they scare the shit out of me like the idea <laughs> the idea of that we're that vulnerable and subjected to and subjective, susceptible is the word to mind control and being programmed and conditioned yeah. you know even even a movie like Martha Marcy May Marlene sort of touches upon like how you know easily we can get swayed into certain groups without realizing that they're unhealthy for us. Yeah. So like, yeah, you know, the, the cults and conspiracy theories, I'm fascinated by them and, but I'm also terrified to explore. Right. Even just reading too much into a movie, like eyes wide shut with, with uh, Illuminati like ideas Mm -hmm. is kind of like, I think I want to push that away because it might be a little too creepy to think like, oh, God, the government somehow killed Stanley Kubrick. You know, I don't want to go that far. I don't want to go... I already, you know, think the government killed JFK, you know? Yeah. So, I I mean, there are definitely, like, moments in my life where I've thought, you know, crazy things or 9-11 conspiracy theories, of course, but Mm -hmm. I'm not ready to think that, like, oh, my God, Stanley Kubrick was trying to relay messages uh, through Room 237, you know? (laughs) Uh, Just... uh, well, that's I all mean, crazy stuff to me.
1: Well, I mean, I mean, it's a part. I mean, it's a part about like how his, how his, um, his filmmaking ability gives you to evoke these, it gives yeah. you evoke these images, and then, and then his desire to go and reduce things to easy explanations. So you, you get these things that whether that whether we train, we're trained to do it by watching all the, all these other films, other kinds of films. Or we are, um, or we are, it's a natural ability of ours. And I think it's probably a, the majority is the latter is our ability to, to take a couple of details and be able to put up a story out of those details. Yeah, I think that com- he, uh, Kubrick gives us a lot of the um, elements of the, of the former and then like, removes, those, removes those easy explanations
0: so we have to look for one. And the ones we hmm. come up with... Yeah, kind of, kind of can, can be, uh, you know, all over the place, they, and they can also fit, which is kind of wonderful. I mean, as a, as a visual stylist with meticulous attention to detail, he is one of our great filmmakers. He is. There's a reason why guys like Scorsese and Spielberg and Woody Allen say he's one of the great filmmakers of our time because he is. Like, even if one of his movies leaves you cold it'll keep you thinking he'll leave you with indelible images long after the movie is over. Even if, uh, even if you think the shining is a poor adaptation, you cannot get over some of those images. Like you, they'll stay with you. And I think that's, he is, he will always be remembered as one of our great directors. And I am forever grateful for having experienced so many of his films. And, and, Any of it, if any of his movies are playing on the big screen, I am willing to go and rewatch them again and again. Yeah, his,
1: uh, I mean, his films like uh, just almost are so much, just get, end up getting so much by seeing it on a, on a, on a big screen. Uh, Because the, the, just the visual, I mean, just the, all, just the vastness of the visuals on the, um, um, when you, when it's, it's at the edges of your vision and you have the all encompassing nature of uh, of them uh, then it gives you a level of appreciation that you just would just not unfortunately not be able to get once you are uh, have it like the limits of a of a screen no matter sure. no matter on the no matter on the wide screen. by the way i just it leads me to ask a quick question which is that have you had the chance to see um uh, 2001 in 70mm not yet okay cuz music th- box will be my first time and i'll do it next month oh that's okay that's amazing because because I was lucky enough to do that twice and when you see it in 70 millimeter, I have a feeling you you'll, uh, you will have a dramatically different effect for it because among the things I the most one of the more amazing things is that the acting is a lot more robust in the film than a lot of people in 2001 that the people have given it credit for. There's a, a, a tremendous amount of subtlety going on with Floyd's and with Dave Bowman's uh, uh, Kiduella's uh, performance sure um, but if you see it in 35 millimeter those get muted and so and so um <coughs> they really get brought out as does like the as does the dimensionality of the travel you almost think like you're watching like a 3d rendition of it it feels
0: so potent i can't wait so we're gonna wrap things up here with our top three stanley kubrick movies as hard as that may be but i think i can do it number three for me would be dr strange love Number two would be 2001, and number one is Eyes Wide Shut. Although I probably already said, 2001 is probably the best Stanley Kubrick movie by far, but Eyes Wide Shut just happens to be my favorite. So there. Oh,
1: oh <laughs> what okay. are yours?
0: Uh, like I,
1: I would go and uh, for me, like two, uh, two and three are are pr- are pretty tough because. I really I consider pretty much every Kubrick every Kubrick film after uh, uh The Killing afterwards with the exception of um The Shining to be an exceptional work among some of the best films that uh, that have ever been made. Um uh so to, with that in mind, I think if I was to I think if I was to, to rank them today, I would give my third to um The Killing because it's because of its ability to like take the noir genre and literally move it up to another level. Yes. To, a, to a way where like film to a way where the genre didn't even realize that that was a, a level it could go, it could go to Right. an existential <laughs> uh, noir. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, my, mm, for my second, I, for my second, I would say for a Stra- uh, doctor, strange love. It's, it's just, it's, it's landmark status as a, as a satire, I mean, literally taking the, the darkest and biggest of like, um, of threats and using it to make a, a wild, partial comedy that manages to, uh, manages to be very incredibly hilarious and lets you really think about what you were in the middle of laughing of is still stunning to behold in this day. And, but for me, that's my number one, uh, Kubrick is, is 2001. It's my favorite. I think it's the personally, I, I like, uh, I think it's the best film ever made. In fact, not only am I amazed by like um uh, by how like it asks these really big questions about uh, about us, our sense of purpose, our use of technology, our place in the universe, how we will navigate all these things. But I actually think the fact of it's the movie itself is probably the best evidence of our ability to actually get answers to them.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, it, it gives me faith. It gives me hope and faith in humanity when somebody can ask those bigger questions. And, you know, postulate, present an answer in an artistic way. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so this was great, Al. Thanks for being patient and basically having the same conversation twice. Although I would say that maybe this was an improvement. I think I think we stepped it up. I think we touched upon some similar um, ideas, but maybe we... Um, brought up some other ones that we hadn't before. Well, I mean, I think that, like,
1: I, I think it's both, like, a, a testament to just just the kind of great material that, <laughs> that, that sure. Stanley Kubrick's films give us, you know, to work with, and also just the format of the discussion where you look at, where you look, we're able to look at those works and compare... Uh, uh, and compare and and look at how they work on all these different levels that just like leads to like that that would just leads to some really renewed appreciation for um for this director and what uh, director and what he can do and and the elements that the elements that he did well can work so uh will, uh could allow for appreciation for even the other films i know from yeah. our our, for our talk here um i picked up on other even other ways to like um, uh, appreciate and uh, value what Kubrick's doing. So, uh, thanks so much yeah. for having me over. So, well, thank I you. I can do that.
0: Thank you, sir. Because I got a lot to to unpack and uncover when I rewatched 2001 on the big screen. <laughs> thanks to you. Oh well, thanks. Awesome. <laughs> so this was great. Um, you know, hopefully we don't have to do this a third time. We won't because I have a backup. <laughs> I actually brought a whole backup system with a different microphone, and a different laptop just in case this time cuz i was like super nervous that uh, you know technology would fail us again but hopefully hal did not interfere as far as al um where can we read more of your work online if we want to find you oh
1: um uh yes well i have a i have a site where i um i post out some like uh, movie reviews and various thoughts I have about film um uh, uh if you'd like to read or uh, read some of it it's over at uh cinemal2001.wordpress.com <laughs> clever yeah right i mean uh uh not uh, a pretty obvious uh choice for anyone who knows my uh what i what i like on film it's a c i n uh Two zero zero one dot dot and I also have a Cinemal account on Letterboxd.
0: All right, yeah, Letterboxd rules. It it's does. a it's a lot of fun. It's a great way to share reviews and ratings with a, a lot of a lot of cinephiles out there. So I encourage you all to follow Al. Um, he's going to be on the show at least three or four more times this year. We're going to give him the schedule, and uh, you know you'll be back on for some other directors that you're excited about too. So that'll be great. Um, as far as our next episode, be very excited because returning guest Colin Suter, which is how I met Al, was through Colin Suter. He's going to be on to talk about the great George Miller. So we're going to probably, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to talk about pretty much all of his films if we can, um, including the latest masterpiece, Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> so it's going to be a lot of fun to have Colin back on the show. Um, until next time visit directorsclubpodcast.com email us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com and you can visit me at letterbox at Instant Twitter at Instant and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks with Colin thank you so much Al for being on the show Uh, thanks for having me and thank you all for listening have a good night bye
2: we'll meet again don't know where
0: And that's why him and his crew, like he, they sort of, uh, you know, relegate to taking a selfie, you know, in front of <laughs> that's in, right, in front of, right, in front of a monolith, <laughs> right, you know?
1: exactly. It becomes a right. The biggest creation becomes a tourist and becomes another tourist attraction.